Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The sun ain't gonna shine in it. The Ben Jarofsky Show starts now. It is Tuesday, November 12th, and live from the Chicago Sun-Times Chicago Reader Studio on Racine Avenue, this is The Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, our Chicago Reader colleague, Maya Duke-Masova, will join us. It's the Benny J Show debut of Sun-Times writer Denise O'Neill. And it's the return of political strategist Lori Glenn and Juanita Irizarry of Friends of the Park. And now your host, also mm. a friend of the park. <laughs> you don't litter, do you? Mm-mm. Friend of the park. Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Siberia Tuesday, and here's why. I'll tell you why. It's cold outside. That's correct. Oh, uh, thank you. Well, Robert Mueller, it is freezing outside. But before I uh, take that deep dive, I just want to say a couple things. First of all, did you have a good weekend, D? Yes, I did. Okay, very good. Very good, good weekend. Good weekend. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's say Tuesday. <laughs> Uh, I had a good week, a very uh, relaxing week, and I just want to throw this out here. I don't want to spend uh, too much time talking about this, uh, but uh, I had an emergency, a medical emergency in my family, my wife. We thought she had a heart attack. Uh, God bless it. She did not have a heart attack. So that's why I missed Friday's show. Friday and Saturday, we're in the hospital doing all kinds of tests, and uh, she came out great and we're healthy, but um, it was a, quite a scare for the Ben Jarofsky family. Uh, so I want to thank uh, all the people at Illinois Masonic, man. They are... Uh, troopers uh, i want to thank the people who put up with me on the show who were you know just uh post i had a postponed friday show and everybody was great about it and uh, very um concerned uh, uh, rob markwick a special shout out to you uh how many texts i got from rob markwick state senator rob markwick who was supposed to be on the show so anyway uh, we dodged a bullet feeling uh, pretty good we relaxed this weekend uh, just chilled out read books rested thought about my beloved bulls all right and woke up. But you said rested. You can't, you can't be thinking about the Bulls too much. They are not good. No, they're not. But I still, they're my beloved Bulls, all right? I'm not one of these guys going to throw the Bulls under a bus. Oh, okay. uh-uh. I'm a Bulls fan, all well, right, should have heard Ben Jarofsky Tuesday night while eating pizza while they were losing to the Lakers. Oh, oh my. screw this team. Yeah, but it's true. And that may be true. Uh, we were watching uh, Dr. Doctor D, myself, and Cap were at uh, Pequot's. Can we just say that? Man, that pizza is so good. And uh, Dr. Dog, a shout-out to you. Our good friend who works at Pequots. And um, while we were dining, the Bulls were blowing a 20-point lead to the Lakers. And I was good. Anyway, watch your language. I still love my beloved Bulls. Woke up to discover it's freezing cold outside and it snowed. God, it's early November. It snowed. Uh, and it uh, gives me an opportunity to talk about a couple things. Uh, Chicago's bizarre infatuation. Oh, Ben, someone's calling you during the show. You love when that happens. I love it. It's Nick Spazzato calling oh! me. <laughs> Should I take it? Yeah, sure. All right, hold on. Hold on. Here we go, everybody. It's a live phone call. Hello? Nick, I love you. I'm on the air live. I just saw you calling me. Let me call. <laughs> I'll call you back. We'll book you. I'm going to book you for next week, all right? 
We'll do next Thursday. All right. All right. Very good. How about that, ladies that and gentlemen? A first. A first. Nick Spazzato, Alderman Mix. Everybody's got a Trump voting friend. All right? Now, here, I'm going to get so much grief from my friends of the lefty persuasion, and I have not. Why are you still friends with Nick Spazzato? Okay? He voted for Trump. It's true. Nick's got, Nick and I don't see eye to eye on a lot of things. But you know what? Nick was there with the teachers in 2012. That meant a lot to me. Nick stood up to Mayor Rahm in the early days. That meant a lot to me. And uh, so we're going to bring Nick on the show next week to talk about what is it going to take to get him to vote uh, Democrat against uh, over Donald Trump. We'll get him on next week. Anyway. Uh, that was Nick Spasato calling me online. I, I've always wanted to do that, and I did that. No, right. How'd that feel? How'd it feel? It felt really good, man. I haven't felt that good since 1980 when I was smoking reefer. All right, well, I didn't like it, so don't do it again. Oh, I'm so sorry. Okay. Uh, anyway, so one of the, the things about uh, the cold is that, one, it gets in the issue of uh, our love for mayors. We'll get into that. But, two, it gives me an opportunity uh, to talk about headlines, okay? Because when it's really cold out, both newspapers, my, my beloved bright one, the Chicago Sun-Times and the Tribune, uh, feel compelled to put it on the front page oh, yeah. with a clever headline. And we all know it's cold, but come on, everybody's talking about Everything it. Everything gets second billing when it's cold outside. All right, let me just say this tribute. Now, you know, got my issues with the editorial board, but I love you. Basically, a lot of great writers at the Chicago Tribune, okay? I overlooked the editorial page. It was just, they're all even as whacked out uh, as they are. And uh, But, you know, you got to up your game, okay? I mean, this is the kind of headline I would write. That's how bad it is. Headline, a new low. Oh, I kind of, kind of like that. that a new low? It's not that bad. Not that bad? A new low. Because right. it's a new low. Yeah, it's a new low. It's never been this cold on this day. <laughs> oh, Very God. literal. I kind of like it. A new okay. low. There you go, Tribune. Let's up the game a little bit. There's got to be somebody here who can write about Now, let's go to my beloved bright one. All right? Okay. Home delivered every day, as is the Tribune. Now, remember, the last one we just heard, a new low. <laughs> Here's my beloved bright one. Cold November pain. Cold November pain. Now, when I read that, I was like, hmm, I got to tell you, I have a confession to make. And this is a generational thing, all right? This is the difference between me, Dr. D, and Brian Ernst, the brain of the Sun-Times, who runs the media thing here at the Sun-Times. We were discussing this headline. I thought it was a reference to a song that the king did and the king is elvis and show some respect Hell young yeah. man show some respect okay, okay what do you want me to do <laughs> push-ups or something <laughs> he had, a, he had a, uh, a song way back in the day called cold kentucky rain you know that song in the cold kentucky rain whoa i love elvis anyway uh cold kentucky rain but no dennis and brian pointed out to me uh Negatory, not Elvis. It's Guns and Roses. Reference. It's Guns and Roses, and I'm like, Guns and Roses. I and then I looked it up, and you know what, guys? I hate to say this, but I really hate to say this, but Dennis and Brian were right, and I was wrong. It's not Cold Kentucky Rain that they were riffing on. It's Cold November Rain by Guns and Rogus. <laughs> Guns and Rogus. Oh, I love those Guns guys. And Guns and Rogus. Uh, now, for 10 trivia points, uh, Dennis, 
Who is the guitar player for Guns N' Roses? Oh my God, I asked you that. It's Slash. (laughs) And I knew the answer when you asked me. Slash. For a second, I thought... Now, the leader of Guns N' Roses. I gotta sit and think about that. Joe Rogus? (laughs) That would be Joe Rogan, my favorite. Uh, Anyway, Cold November Pain. So I think there's some clever uh, headline writer for the Chicago Sun-Times who came at age in the 90s and thought, huh, this is a good one. Cold November Pain. And all the boomers are like thinking it's Elvis Presley and everybody else is no, no, no. It's uh, Guns N' Roses. So anyway, I have to say Sun-Times Tribune, come on now. New low versus cold November pain. Dennis, go. I like a new low. Well, you know, at least just being honest. I go with cold November pain, even though I thought it was a... Yeah, you didn't even get it. No, but I thought it was cold Kentucky rain. In the cold Kentucky rain. The brilliance of the Sun-Times writer is that it leaves it open for interpretation. It could be one, it could be the other. You know, it could be Boomer, it could be 90s. Anyway. Even the paper's leaving you behind. Cold. (laughs) References you don't even get in the newspaper. It's funny, it's a newspaper which is like should be extinct anyway you know yeah. everybody reads stuff on phones except for me i get subscriptions to three newspapers old moves sometimes 90s references <laughs> in written form 90s references cold november pain a snowstorm cancels 1300 plus flights out of chicago i don't know i like the sometimes version but, but i guess i am biased toward the bright one over the tribune anyway uh, the other thing about the, the uh, snowstorm uh is that it uh, awakens the great debate that i have all the time with young Kenneth Davis as a frequent guest on this show. Kenny D. Kenny D, yo, what up? Uh, and the debate goes like this, uh, and I'm trying, uh, I'm going to do my best to... Ken uh, Davis impression? <laughs> it's your best impression ever. No words, but sounds just like him. Oh, uh, shout out to Kyle. He says, has Ben admitting that he is unwilling to read an article unless the headline makes him laugh and clap his hands? <laughs> no, I'm not admitting that at all. But you know what? If you want to take that interpretation out of be feel free. It's like John Lennon said, I don't know what I'm writing. Just whatever you want. Read into it. So, you know, hey, God bless you, man. Put it on Twitter. Uh, so uh, anyway, uh, young Kenneth Davis uh, sticks is born and raised in Chicago, at least raised in Chicago, proud graduate of Prosser High, and as such, uh, has the Chicago notion that everything begins and ends with the mayor. The mayor's all powerful. And uh, without our strong mayor at the helm, the city would fall apart. I, on the other hand, have subscribed to the notion that we don't even need a mayor, that the city would operate, 90% of the city would operate without a mayor. And uh, Ken always goes, oh my God, you're so wrong. And I go, no, 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 you're wrong. And that's sort of a debate that's been going oh, on. I've been in the middle of one of those. <laughs> Good God, it's boring. <laughs> Kenny D, I love him dearly. We'll have that debate in the old age home anyway. So, uh, so the, the the true test of this is anytime we have when we have that snow that first snow and this is Lori's first snow so will the plows come out and clear the street you know it's always ner- will you know somehow or other the the snow plow drivers go oh, we got a new mayor we don't have to report to work hey let's go get high with Ben and Dennis you know drink a beer at the <laughs> bowling alley never out. happened <laughs> Oh, you know, it's a new mayor. We don't have to worry about it. Well, I'm proud to say, I'm happy to say that the city of Chicago works with Lori Lightfoot as mayor. The streets were plowed, all right? And, of course, this is a lesson that mayors in the city of Chicago learned way back in, uh, what was it, 1979. We had a mayor named Belandic who sort of fell asleep at the wheel when we had one of the biggest snowstorms in the history of Chicago. Not only did the streets not get plowed, but the trains didn't work, and there was a rebellion by the voters, and he was out 
ousted, Jane Byrne was elected, and the lesson Chicago mayors learned from that is this. You could do anything you want to the voters in Chicago. You can run a secret slush fund called TIFFs that siphons off millions and millions of dollars a year. You could overlook the other way while black people are tortured in jail. You can, what else can you do? You could sell off the parking meters for a fraction of what they're worth. You could do pretty much, you can nickel and dime people with taxes and fines and fees. But you have to make sure that Every flake of snow is cleared from the streets or the voters will rebel. Well, guess what? Lori Lightfoot passed that first test in flying colors. In fact, I think I, I think I saw Lori driving oh, a snowplow down Ashland Avenue. There she was. And then she I saw her on the train up, up with a conductor's cap. Oh, buddy, I'm a conductor. And uh, so anyway, she passes that first test with flying colors. Lori, as far as the people of the city of Chicago are concerned, you could be mayor for as long as you want. We got a great show today, everybody. Let's see. Maya will be here. Maya Dukmasova will be here. She'll be walking here in about a half an hour. Uh, Denise O'Neill from the Chicago Sun-Times. Great story that she wrote over the week about CBS. We're talking a little bit about that. CBS is a college. I was going to say the pharmacy? No, not the a high school in the south side oh, okay, of Chicago. Okay. And then uh, a lot of political talk, local, national, and state with um, Lori Glenn and Juanita Irizarry. I will be in here uh, about 2.30 or so to talk politics, local, national, state. So plenty of political talk ahead of us. But before we do that, the young man from Alton, and he's been known to drive a plow every now and then. Oh, yes. Back home, they call him White Lightning, the doctor with the news. <laughs> I have been known to uh, plow some snow, but uh, not a doctor, and I don't know why he calls me White Lightning. <laughs> Still trying to figure that one out, everybody. <laughs> All right, we begin with what's happening in Chicago and or Illinois this afternoon. Mm. Big day at the state capitol. Mm-hmm. Ben, the Chicago mayor's in town. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. More on that in moments, but first, we have an update on all this damn dirty Illinois corruption. This one involves Arroyo Gate. Ben loves Arroyo Gate. I love Arroyo Gate. One of my, it's one of my favorite corruption scandals in the city. I'm gonna, I almost want to thank corrupt Chicago politicians for thank giving you. meaning life, meaning to our lives by being so corrupt. So, <laughs> whatever you know, helps us get through the misery of a winter in the city in Chicago, which starts apparently in November. For those who may not know, Arroyo Gate was the time when Illinois Democratic <laughs> State Rep. Louis Arroyo became former state rep Louis Arroyo, (laughs) after being charged with federal program bribery. He agreed to pay a state senator who was wired $2,500 a month in exchange for the senator's support on video gaming legalization. Real greasy stuff. He resigned as state rep shortly after. But hey, sleazy or not, at least you can't say that Louis Arroyo doesn't have passion for Illinois politics, Ben. He wants to stay in the game, buddy. Because while, yes, he's no longer a state rep, Arroyo still holds his position in the Cook County Democratic Party, and he insists on being a part of the process and finding his temporary replacement as state rep. Ben, I'm not sure whether to feel frightened, dumbfounded, or impressed (laughs) by the nerve of Louis Arroyo. But regardless, his Democratic colleagues are not too happy. Yes, our Illinois governor, J.B. Pritzker, and company agree. Dude. You can't resign from your major political job because of bribery and keep your other side political job. And, dude, why would we take your recommendation on your replacement? You were just busted by the feds for bribery. Welcome to Illinois. Governor Pritzker said it would be, quote, unacceptable, given the charges against him, for Arroyo to participate in making the appointment of a temporary replacement. 
And you know things are serious when you got to have our long, long, long time Democratic House Speaker Michael Madigan write a letter about it. In a letter to committee members, Madigan said, quote, any involvement by the 36th Ward, whether a direct vote or a vote by proxy, would cause the candidate's qualifications to be challenged by the full Illinois House of Representatives. Ben Drovsky, your thoughts on all this? I mean, Arroyo's obviously out of his mind, right? Okay, let me take the deep dive. This is one of my favorite topics, and I'm looking forward to it. But before I get started on this, for all you self-righteous, pounding your chest, uh, Democrat-hating Republicans out there, including many uh, that write for the Chicago Tribune's editorial page. Just want to let you know, anytime you want to weigh in with the extortion of Donald John Trump in Washington, feel free. I'm all outraged about Louis Arroyo uh, apparently uh, taking a bribe uh, on, and there's on tape with some unknown state senator, or at least we, we, the feds haven't identified who that state senator is. But Donald John Trump was shaking down the president of Ukraine uh, for dirt on uh, Joseph Biden. So, you know, withholding money to the that Congress had uh, appropriated for Ukraine. So I'm just saying, you know, it's interesting how selective that rage of Republicans is. It's OK for the president to extort uh, president of Ukraine, but it's really bad for a, an obscure state representative in Illinois uh, to shake down a state senator or uh, I, uh, I don't know. Actually, I I'm not even sure ultimately who was going to be paying him because the full like the, the tapes haven't been released. But having said that, let me say this. Yes, yes, yes. It's wrong to uh, to bribe people. It should not be done. It should not be tolerated. People should go to jail for it. Louis Arroyo, shame, shame, shame on you. And but it apparently he's taking a page from Donald John Trump. And that is that page is he's just not going to walk away from it. D. So follow me on this, folks. He did resign as a state rep from uh, the northwest side uh, ward uh, district on the northwest side of Chicago. Now the issue is who is going to replace him. And, and keep in mind, folks, it's a relatively sure. Well, it'll be a uh, there'll be a primary in uh, what is it? March of 2020 for the Democrats to select a candidate to run in November of 2020. So I guess, yeah, it's about a year that this person would be in office. So it would be a significant amount of time, although the selection process would begin uh, the replacement process as we begin with the primary in March. So if uh, what he should do, of course, is to step down as Democratic committeemen as well, because it's the committeemen who gather, the uh, committeemen from uh, the wards that are in that district that gather to vote on a replacement. Uh, but he won't step down. Now you're saying, well, what difference does it make? Does he? How does the process work? Well, here's how it works, uh, ladies and gentlemen. There's a weighted vote given to the committeemen from the wards in that district, and the most significant uh, number of votes uh, fall to two wards: the um, the 36, where uh, the um, Arroyo is the committeeman, and Ariel Robroyas is 30th, and Robroyas is refusing to break from Arroyo. So, okay, you follow me? I know this is very confusing, but this is power politics by Democrats on the northwest side of Chicago. And they're they're claiming a greater principle, just like Donald Trump in Washington. He claims that uh, he has the right to do whatever he wants, and it's a, witch, uh, it, it's a witch hunt and a hoax, the investigation into him, and the Democrats are just trying to undo the election of 2016. And so he should be allowed to do whatever he wants as a result, and the Republican Party is falling in line. In the case of Arroyo... 
and Reboyas, they're saying that um, uh, there should be Hispanic empowerment uh, on the northwest side of Chicago and that this is an attempt to undercut Hispanic empowerment. It's an interesting interpretation of what's going on. Uh, I'm sure there's plenty of Hispanic politicians in that area that could be considered to replace him, but a very interesting interpretation uh, by Rebroyus and Arroyo. And so if you add them together, they can block anybody from replacing uh, Arroyo. So Michael Madigan, who suddenly has discovered reform, Michael Joseph Madigan, of course, the House Speaker, who uh, up till now would probably look the other way on something like this, but is so nervous about um, his reputation as the House Speaker with all the uh, the all the uh, the the investigations swirling around him on the southwest side is suddenly as pure as snow and uh, has decided that the Democratic Party. Uh, must clean up its act once and for all. So this, so he has said, no, this is an embarrassment to the Democrats uh, to have Arroyo participate in the naming of a successor. And I will not allow that person to be seated uh, in, uh, in, the, in the General Assembly. So it is a showdown. And all of a sudden, Arroyo and Rebroyas have discovered their inner, uh, what is it, their inner Leon Dupre. They're suddenly independents. They're suddenly standing up for for free thinking Hispanics on the northwest side. And I'm I'm just loving this D. I have never seen it's so much hypocrisy going on right here. Starting with Republicans. I saw a quote from uh, Jim Durkin who is the head of the uh, the Republican Party in the, the General Assembly, the in the House of Representatives saying only in Chicago. Oh really? It's happening in Washington right now. What? But only you know Republicans are very selective again on what they denounce when it comes uh, to power politics. And so apparently Arroyo Louis Arroyo and Ariel Broyers are tag teaming. They're taking a page out of Donald John Trump, and they're not going without a, down without a fight. And we'll be following this one, D, for weeks to come. This is oh, going to yeah. be interesting. By the way, speaking our very own Jacob Kaplan dodged a bullet on this one. Remember, D? Oh, yeah. A couple, about 10 days ago, uh, Jacob was a, a monthly guest on the Ben Jarofsky Show, executive director of the Cook County Democratic Party. We were talking about Arroyo Gate uh, in the studio, and then the show ended, and the phone rang, and all of a sudden that's where he learned that Arroyo wasn't stepping down and I go Jacob you dodged a bullet he goes you ain't kidding and then he dashed I, out I, the was, I turned the microphone <laughs> I'm chasing him around and, hey come on give us the scoop anyway I, listen man this is a trip to just to think that all this is what it took to get Ariel Arroyas and Louis Arroyo to stand up Democratic power uh, chieftains in the state of Illinois I welcome a little late could have used you guys to stand up to like I don't know the sale, the parking meter deal. Uh, I don't know the, uh, the the TIF handout for Lincoln Yards. You know, I mean, I don't know the the Olympics. I mean, I think of all the waste of money that powerful mayors and powerful state uh, Springfield politicians have shoved down our throat. Never once did Louis Arroyo and Arroyo Boya stand up to that, but now they've discovered their inner Tom Paine, and suddenly they're revolutionaries. So better late than never, I suppose. I'm waiting for Republicans in Washington uh, to show the same defiance uh in the face of donald john trump and hey arroyo you know if you listen to this podcast you're more than welcome to come on the program come on in but hey let me tell you one thing no bribes <laughs> if i see you in the corner talking to ben ben's too easy all right <laughs> throw you out of here pal uh, I, uh, a piece of pizza from pequod oh maybe. my god that's all it would take from uh, and chicken wings <laughs> oh, and then chicken. ben jarofsky's the chicken wings are good 
empty. Oh, man. Yeah, they were okay. All right, moving along. Pretty Lori hard. Lightfoot, welcome back to Springfield. Okay. Our Chicago mayor is at the state capitol today. Did she attend a luncheon? I don't know. Probably. She loves luncheons, everybody. She's not leaving spring. <laughs> what? She's not leaving Springfield empty-handed, she though, right? Lunch. She's not leaving Springfield empty-handed no, because no. Mayor Lightfoot needs Springfield's help to erase the city's $838 million, damn near billion-dollar budget deficit. Yes, that's billion <laughs> with a B. Finally comes from the That's a lot of money. Yeah, you're damn right. The finally comes from the Chicago Sun-Times and Tina Spondelas as lawmakers return to Springfield for the veto session on Tuesday. The mayor's office said Lightfoot will push for a cleanup measure to finally get Chicago a, a casino. Let's talk about the casino. Lightfoot was forced back to the table after a feasibility study by a Las Vegas consultant found onerous taxes in the gambling bill passed this year would prevent any developer from getting the financing to break ground on the city casino. The mayor is now looking at adjusting that effective tax rate of 72%. And as far as the, uh, oh, Ben, before we move on, your thoughts on the casino. Well, <clears throat> Here's the situation with the casino. I, I I've made this clear. You don't. It doesn't get more regressive than a casino in terms of taxes. Uh, as we say, if you go to a casino, you're going to lose. The whole thing is set up to make you lose. If you win, it's a miracle. And uh, so it's a sucker's game, and you're shaking down suckers who are addicted to gambling or so desperate to make some money that they're just going to throw good money after bad. I saw, I see this all the time. Uh, I see this all the time with sports gamblers, always chasing that next game. Think that this is the game they're going to win the money on, and invariably in the end, I don't know, they probably end up losing more than they end up winning. So it's a sucker's game. Uh, but the reality is that uh, Chicago and the state of Illinois and the country as a whole uh, is to, incapable of, at the moment anyway, of adopting a fair, progressive form of funding government. So in the absence of that, they turn to the most regressive forms, which are, includes gambling. So as set, the whole thing is set up uh, for uh, suckers to lose, and then they squeeze out of those losses some proceeds that will help the state and the city pay its bills. Now, apparently there's not enough, uh, there's not enough profit in the way they set the, there's too much money being squeezed for the state and the city. So Lori Lightfoot, uh, wants the state to change the bill so that there's more money for the gambling operators. <laughs> so a regressive form of taxation becomes even more regressive. Uh, but this is where we're at D you know, and this is just the state of affairs in uh, Chicago and Illinois uh, in 2019 as we head into a 2020 vote on the fair tax, which I right now, if I had to put money down in Vegas, speaking of gambling, would say would fail. So we're stuck in a really bad position where we're more and more dependent on taxes that people can't afford to pay. And yet, that's the road we're heading down. So that's the situation, folks. It's a bad tax. It's a bad idea. I hate to think that Illinois or Chicago would have to rely on it, but there we are. There's, I can't see of any movement other than the fair tax as an alternative, so we're stuck with this. 
All right, so you don't want to go gambling with me this week. No, don't want to go gambling. I'm a reformed, I say this, I'm a reformed gambler. I've kicked the habit. I watch it with passion and interest. I'm always tempted to jump in. Anytime, man, so many times of bowling, I'm ready to lay that bet down, but I always walk away, D. Go, "Uh uh-uh, not this time, okay? All right. I'm like Gardy Lang. I'm I'm one day at a time with my gambling, all right, D? And as for the uh, legislative priorities here, Lightfoot is also pushing for a tax break for real estate sales value at less than $500,000 while also setting four tiers of tax rates for higher value sales. The top rate of 2.55% would allow or would apply to property transfers valued at more than $10 million. That plan faces some opposition from progressives who want more revenue to fund homelessness as well as Republicans and real estate groups. The mayor's office did not provide further details about Lightfoot Springfield visit besides providing a statement touting the real estate transfer tax as a quote progressive and fair revenue priority. Yes, indeed. There's a lot we can talk about that Maya's sitting here. This is her wheelhouse. She's dying to talk about this. So I say we hold up and take a break and come back with Maya to address this and many other issues. How about that, D? Sounds good. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. What you're about to hear are the piano stylings of Jeff Manuel. Listen to Jeff go. Jeff Manuel has been playing piano around Chicago for years. He's played for conventions, for celebrities, played in basement bars with blues bands. He's played at prestigious social clubs, fine restaurants, and in the intimacy of private homes. Book Jeff Manuel at jeffemanuelpianist.com. Don't worry, I'll spell his name at the end of this commercial. You know what Chicago Magazine said? They said that Jeff Manuel is, quote, as comfortable with Chopin as he is with Cole Porter. He's excellent, and his performance is joyous. He offers an elegant stream of compositions and interpretations that entertains the mind but won't hurt the ears. To hear more of Jeff Manuel's work and to book Jeff for your next event, go to jeffmanuelpianist.com. I'm going to spell it out for you, people. J-E-F-F. M as in Mary, A, N as in Nancy, U, E, L, P, I, A, N, I, S, T, dot com. Take it away, Jeff Manuel. Read the Chicago Reader to get up to speed on what's what in Chicago. Culture. Food. Arts and entertainment, weekly concert listings, weekly event listings, the environment, travel. I can continue, but you get the point. And for all of you Chicago political junkies, raw weekly columns on real city politics from Maya Dukmasova and our very own Ben Jarofsky. The Chicago Reader, free to the public in newsstands throughout the city and online at chicagoreader.com. Read it now and be a more informed Chicagoan. Back to the Ben Jarofsky Show, live from the Chicago Sun-Times. We are live from the Chicago Sun-Times. Maya, just back from New York City, flew in, and uh, it's 
join the freezing cold uh, here in the city of Chicago. It was a lot nicer in New York, was it not? Oh, yeah. It was 60 degrees there yesterday. So, yeah. All right. We'll talk about your New York visit. Uh, we have a lot of things on the agenda to talk about uh, at the top of which is journalism in the uh, the year 2019 and the outcry over uh, what uh, the the editor of the Daily Northwestern did, the, North, the newspaper for students at Northwestern University. Before we do that, let's just go back to the story that uh, Dennis was alluding to, Lori Lightfoot going to Springfield uh, to try to get the state to pass uh, a progressive real estate transfer tax that would give the city more money uh, for its coffers. Back in the day when she was candidate, Lori Lightfoot, she was saying she was going to dedicate that money to uh, promote affordable housing and fight homelessness. And now as Mayor Lori Lightfoot, she's realizing she's facing various budget challenges, uh, to use that word. And so she wants to use that money for general revenue. Mm -hmm. And that has upset uh, housing activists throughout the city who are hoping that uh, the mayor would be dedicating the money to fight the the cause of affordable housing. Do I have that right? Yep. Yeah. Your general thoughts on that? I mean, I just think that this is, uh, I mean, it's not that surprising this is happening. This is a, you know, what she was saying on the campaign trail was a political calculation, um, you know, promises that she had no idea how probably she was going to even deliver on and probably people on her team didn't either. Um, I think that, uh, you know, but the housing activists also have a very good point about how this is why this was the mandate she had she got elected for this is part of like what propelled her to being elected so um i think it's not you know it's not wrong of them to try to keep her feet to the fire and make her deliver on the the concrete promises she made so um you know i think this is a good uh this is a uh, this is one of the things that we should be talking about in our show in our next first tuesday show um first tuesday of december at the hideout uh it'll be a show dedicated to housing uh and housing activism so we'll be we'll be talking to some experts and maybe some people from the city if they agree to join us about all this kind of stuff all right very good yes that's a, a what they call a promo right d <laughs> uh, a tease Sli- did you see how i slipped that in there yeah Just a little promo yeah promo tease uh dr d tells me tease so next first tuesday we'll have i hope we can get someone from Lori lightfoot's administration to talk about this as well all right uh moving on from uh the housing situation let's talk about what went down it's so funny this is a generational thing right here we'll just start with it i always make fun of myself uh why not huh i'm so uh, i'm a boomer i'm stuck in the age of newspapers uh and so when maya and i were talking about what we were going to talk about uh she goes have you heard of been following this thing with the northwestern student reporter i go oh yeah i read an article about it in the new york times to which maya said there was an article in the new york times apparently had been blowing up for days on twitter and i was oblivious to it it doesn't exist till it's in the new york times uh or the sun times or the tribune for me but anyway very interesting story breaking and it has it says a lot about the view journalists have about themselves about their role about the business they're in about yeah. how they go about doing it so why don't you just start yeah. summing so up? so let me let me just give a nutshell summary of of what happened here last week jeff sessions came to speak to the campus republicans at northwestern university in evanston the daily northwest which is the student newspaper at Northwestern University, which is not an organ of the university administration, nor uh, affiliated with the Medill School of Journalism directly. It's not something that's run by the journalism school. This is a student newspaper in the tradition of student newspapers that, of course, I mean, usually does little to rustle any feathers 
uh, on the campus in which they are ensconced, but um, but but technically an independent, uh, you know, press organ on in this in this community that they're a part of in this university community, and so they dispatched reporters to cover Jeff Sessions's appearance on campus uh, in two ways. They had somebody covering his actual speech you know, what happened at the talk that he gave. How about real fast, Jeff Sessions, former attorney general in the Trump administration, former senator from Alabama, right winger. Yes, yes. that A a, a deeply racist and bigoted senator with a long political career who is now trying to recapture his son's seat in Alabama that was, uh, that went to a Democrat in the last election. Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, so they dispatched two reporters, one uh, to cover Jeff Sessions's you know, speech and the other one to cover the protests that had mobilized against Jeff Sessions's appearance on campus. And so in the course of doing this reporting, the, um, they, they sent out a reporter photographer to cover the protest and they had, um, my understanding is that they're, 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 the Daily Northwestern reporters were, were tweeting out images of the protesters, um, in addition to photographs being taken for the story. And uh, then, I guess in the in in the process of doing the story, they also were reaching out to people um, uh, to collect more interviews after the event. And they had um, gone to like the student, you know, campus directory or whatever to get people's phone numbers to then you know text folks to ask more questions about the story. Somebody they interviewed on the scene was named in an article. Uh, and, uh, they ran a story about the protests, including, you know, quotes from somebody and that person's name. So anyway, then afterwards there were, they, they, they were, they received some critical feedback about all of this, um, including like the person who was named in the story that did not want their name to be in the story that they then took out. And there was like a, a bunch of other, you know, criticism they were faced with. And ultimately this all culminated with this editorial that was signed by, I think like seven of the editors of the, of the daily Northwestern, including their editor in chief, who for the first time in like the 135 years, this paper has existed as a black man. Um, and, uh, so the editorial basically said that, you know, that the, the newspaper failed its community. Um, they, that, that they did harm in the process of reporting these stories by sharing pictures of protesters, you know, on the internet, people who many of them were from marginalized communities to whom having their images disseminated on the internet, um, and in, and, 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 and like being identified in these images as people who were protesting this former Trump administration official and this like very like right wing figure. So they, they, they expressed remorse about doing that. They, um, stuck by their decision to remove the student's name that who didn't want to be named, uh, from the story. They also expressed regret about, um, having reached out to, uh, people whose phone numbers, whose cell phone numbers they had called from the student directory. They expressed remorse for having, for the reporters having texted people, you know, after finding their names in the directory. And, um, you know, said that this was acknowledged that this was like an invasion of privacy. So (laughs) this has unleashed a massive backlash from 
the mainstream media establishment, uh, you know, journalists all over the country, including the, you know, people who work for publications such as the New York Times, um, you know, hemming and hawing and lamenting how this represents a real, um, uh, moment of 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 like an, some sort of apocalyptic moment in in terms of the, the journalistic profession and how this is the sort of thing that's killing journalism. People were particularly outraged that uh, like that there would have been any even any consideration of removing pictures of people who were protesting in public. That 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 people you know mainstream journalists were outraged at the idea that it's wrong, that it maybe is wrong to publish photos of people who are protesting in public. And a lot of people took issue with this idea that there was, there was anything wrong with, uh, calling people's cell phone numbers from a student directory and then contacting them, you know, to see if they want to do an interview or whatever. So, um, so far, how does this seem, you know, are, are you following this? Does this yeah. seem accurate to what, how you understood yeah. the situation? Mm-hmm. So my thing is that I, uh, as I'm, as I'm watching people just having these like uh, apoplectic fits on Twitter about how this is the decline of journalism and, and whatnot and how the Northwestern, the daily Northwestern is just like, you know, partic- participating in this coddling and, and I don't know, that that somehow they're failing journalism by 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 being remorseful about these things that seem to be standard journalistic practice, mm-hmm. and and c- calling into question, um, w- you know, the or or grappling with the harm that they caused uh, through practicing standard journalistic practices. Um, the thing that comes that that you know floats up immediately in my mind as I've been observing this is that like. First of all, like journalistic standards are just like things that have been invented in this profession and have been like over the years sanctioned and standardized and like accepted as the way we do things. Sometimes there's litigation and court cases in which, you know, our government are just, you know, our, our, our legal system finds that, okay, like this is okay to do. And the press is allowed to do X, Y, or Z, such as like photograph people in public. If, you know, if there, if there's an event happening in a public space, there's no reasonable expectation of privacy for the people who are participating in that event. And so therefore it's okay to take their picture and publish it. That's like, you know, the press is allowed to do this. This is, but, but it, what it, just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should be doing it. And what what's happening on campus at Northwestern right now is that a student publication that is part of a community there is trying its best to be to re, to retain a, a a good and um, accountable relationship with its community. And the truth is that th- there's like a long history of people who maybe taking a risk to their lives by going out in the street to protest and some kind of injustice. I mean, look at what's happening in Hong Kong, like people and, and it, they don't, they don't want their faces shown and it's dangerous to them to have their faces shown. And in an environment where we were, where like 
are we have an entire like it, you know ex- <laughs> a presidential administration in power right now in this country that was born to this place by the like activation of of and sanction of white supremacy to it is absolutely valid and should and and it should be considered like whether or not it's correct and okay to be taking pictures of people of color and people from other marginalized groups or just in general people who are politically against you know what what what's going you know the the members of this administration and then like blasting out their pictures mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, yes, it's like this could be dangerous for their lives. I mean, people have gotten arrested by the Chicago Police Department in the city of Chicago after their identities were revealed on the pages of the Chicago Tribune through protest photos. It's not the journalist who's going to be going to jail. It's the it's like somebody who was identified in these pictures like this. This happened to Jamal Green when the Tribune published pictures of of uh, of of the, the actions he took during a protest. So, like. The, it is absolutely a good idea for the press to think to think deeply about what it means to be disseminating images of people who already are taking a risk by speaking in public in in against something that you know it, it, they consider to be wrong and life threatening. Uh, it's it's absolutely valid and and it should be considered like what it means to be then disseminating that stuff wider on the internet especially in our culture today mm-hmm. and it's absolutely the case that like yes you can take pictures of people in public and post them and disseminate them and etc like yes you can do that but if you're a newspaper in a community and you're trying to maintain a, a relationship of trust in that community you and people in that community are coming to you and saying like this was messed up and here are the reasons why and you care about having a good relationship with this community and covering it accurately. Yes. Like you should be grappling with this. Absolutely. You should be. I've, I've struggled with this in all the years going way, way back to when I was even younger than you are now, Maya. And I was first starting writing articles and I was coming face to face with the realization that what for me was an article, it was, it, it was a way to make a living. It was a byline. It was, you know what I'm saying? It was, uh, it, it was the way I could advance my career. And for the person that I was dealing with in many cases, it was an intrusion. And I was taking something from them and using it for my advantage. And this is an essential relationship between a journalist and a subject. And I doubt very much, well, I can't say this because I've never taken a journalism course in my entire life, but I doubt very much they deal with it in journalism. Uh, I feel uh, very few journalists struggle with this the way I do. I think I, I've struggled with it too much, but I have yeah, this whole- yeah, The younger journalists are struggling with this a lot. Well, you know, and I, I had a whole, I, anybody I deal with, I have a whole ritual. They notice, if anybody's been interviewed by me for a story, knows, do you want to be quoted? I'm going to quote you. Now, here's the dilly with the dally. Do you want your name used? Blah, blah, blah. Uh, you, and then I always had this 24-hour. I want you to, period, where I go like, you get 24 hours to think about it. Okay? And then we'll see. You know, don't make your decision now. Talk to your wife. Talk to your husband. Talk to your kid. Whatever. And then the next day. Mm-hmm. And that's 
something I adopted. Because I was doing all these neighborhood news stories throughout the 90s, dealing with ordinary Chicagoans who had a gripe about the mayor. So if they're, or the city of Chicago, mm-hmm. you know, they're going to take a step up, put their neck on the line. I want to make sure you understand there could be ramifications. I stand by 100%, blah, blah, blah. That's kind of how I went about it. But I'm unconventional alternative newspaper writer for a reader. It's a little different in the no, but big, here's bad the world. Thing, the, here's the thing, though. It's the, the thing that, that I find like particularly ridiculous about all of this is the way that the rhetoric from the journalists who are outraged by this apparent bending of the standards they, they, they love so much is like, is like the, the, there's like in this immediate escalation in the rhetoric of like, well, this is in, a dangerous to our democracy. Like, if we step back from this standard of publishing pictures of protesters in a public space, we are seeding ground, and, like, the, the lack of this information is putting our society in danger, blah, 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 blah. Like, it's, like, let's be real. Most people doing this work are doing this for their egos, for their for the for the awards, for their for the adrenaline rush if they're in a breaking news environment. This is a job. And this is a job in which, like, w- you know, yes, sometimes people put their lives on the line doing this job, but mostly not in this country. Mm-hmm. This country, it's safe to be a journalist. When I like when I go to Russia and see my family, like I not infrequently people ask me very serious questions about how like what, you know, people are like worried that this is dangerous for my life. To, to do this work here and I have to explain to them like no like this is not like the worst that can happen to me like yeah okay yes I could get sued I could get harassed or intimidated you know like you can yes you can you can 100% be in in, in dangerous and uncomfortable situations as a result of doing this job in this country mm-hmm. but like at the end of the day it's like so, it's like so much safer like the worst that can happen is you're like you know you're you're you get sued. You could get financially ruined doing this job. Mm-hmm. You could lose your you could lose your job because of doing this job wrong. Like there's all, yes, but like this is not this is not like you're gonna get killed yeah. by, by like somebody from your government. No, I mean yes, it's a yes. I'm not saying that this couldn't happen, but I'm just saying that like in this country, this is a relatively safe profession, and the people who are out there saying these Northwestern University journalists are like a threat to democracy. Like you know what? Like the New York Times used to breezily cover lynchings as if this was just like, you know, this is just part of life. You know, like this is like newspapers in this country were vehicles for slave owners to recapture slaves that ran away from them. Like this, like I'm just saying that in general through like this human society has long proceeded in and revolutions have happened power struggles, movements for justice, all this stuff, like all the various setbacks and, 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 and victories of that, that a human society can experience on a macro scale and a small community scale, like all of this has for most of history proceeded without the involvement no, of the I, press. And since the press has been around, it has much more contributed to bad things happening in our society and sanctioned them than been a vehicle for justice. Yeah, no, I... I Wow, that was quite a riff. I um, sorry. <laughs> no, it's good. I really have a lot of thoughts uh, about yeah. this. I say that, and I really. How do I articulate this? I see nothing wrong with journalists reaching out, you know, it, 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 to the people they're covering, and letting them know that there are consequences for participating in the coverage. 
and um and letting them change their mind about it yeah and like not like okay you you agreed to this once yeah, well, and no, now you don't a, get to take it back no no like, that's a standard that's such a line uh <laughs> they gave me a, their name yeah, in, the, yeah. in the in the in the five minutes that they that, that we encountered each yeah. other in the middle of a chaos on the street yeah no, like it's fine uh so yeah so uh at the, on the other hand, I'm going to throw this out at you. If you're a protester and you're publicly protesting and you're going to stand up and let the world know what you feel about Jeff Sessions, then you got to realize there are consequences to what you're doing as well. And uh, you're taking a very public position. It could go the other way. It could be a public protester who's out there, a right winger, who despises Kim Fox. That's the first name that popped in my mind. you know. And uh, so you, there's consequences for taking a public stand. It goes, it cuts both ways. And so I try as a reporter my entire life to recognize that, a private person, an ordinary citizen may not understand that there's consequences. And I'll explain that. But the reality is they've taken that first step. So I think it's incumbent upon them before they take that first step to think about there could be consequences right. for taking but a public stand. The truth is that somebody needs to be taking public stances, especially if you're of the mind that like there's something messed up happening in this country with who's in power and how things are happening. Right. If you're generally of this of, of, of the persuasion that like like Jeff Sessions is a bad guy who's bad for this country, if you, if you even have like a, a passive sense of like this isn't this, our country our society is not better off with jeff sessions in any kind of position of power or with donald trump in any kind of position of power and i would say that most people including most journalists uh that you and i know are of that position but there's a there's a you know like most people are not going to go out there and take their time and their energy and do some kind of public demonstration and the truth is that on the Northwestern University campus, like students are taking the stance. And even if there was no press and there were no phones and there was no Twitter and none of that, they are still in a space that they could be seen. People can, it can be found out who they are and there could be consequences to them. Mm -hmm. Like this is, this is how the repressive, like, how do you think that like purges in various society like societies have ha like have happened like it's not even you don't need the press all you need is like an angry neighbor all you need is someone who disagrees with you who makes a report against mm. you like all of this like just by the fact of being on the street yes you're taking a risk but that doesn't mean that like you don't get to be not okay within your photograph being disseminated on Twitter where like some crazy white supremacist in California can like mail a bomb to you or mm -hmm. something like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, no, I understand the but point I want to get, I want to get to the, to this other issue of, of taking phone numbers from uh, well, student, student directory to Go then ahead. contact students. Uh, this is a, this is an issue that also I'm like mm, <laughs> a little bit disagreeing with that hyperventilation around this from the traditional media establishment but i what i want to say about it is this people like young people today like people who are college students today texting for them is like their primary mode of communication with other human beings 
And I think that any, even my generation, like millennials or whatever, we are like, we are actually like too old. We've, we had too much of like a childhood when before communication <laughs> through screens. Yeah. No, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm serious. Like this is not this, I'm not trying yeah. to be like a sowing a moral panic or making like weird, I'm not making any moral Go arguments ahead, get here. Your what, point. I, what I'm saying is that texting is the primary means by which these people communicate. Okay. Mm-hmm. Young people in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can have an entire social life that's based only, only on texting you n- when you never talk on the phone with people. So in uh, an environment in which the primary mode of communicate, like you cannot call people, like especially like anyone under 25, like the only people that they communicate with on the phone could very easily just be like their mom. Like that's the only person they'll be talking to on the phone. Have you ever, I mean, you are a person who lives entirely by talking on the phone. Like imagine the opposite of that. Yeah. Like I can't call most, even like my closest friends, like I can't call people and the people don't pick up the phone. No, anymore. no, let me just and, and, I break and, this by but saying not, that. But I'm not saying that. that but what no, I'm I just saying, want to say that Maya, when I first met her, she said, t- she told me you're one of the only people I talk to on the phone. Yes, Ben, because you just take it for granted that this is a normal way of communicating with people. But I'm telling you that young people today, they do not talk on the phone. They do not pick up the phone when people call because it's like, like standards of communications. And I'm, again, I'm not talking about this as in, from any kind of moral judgment perspective. I'm just saying standards of communications have changed to such a way that talking on the phone is a hugely private and big deal thing for people. It's like a big deal for, to you, for, to pick up, to call someone on the phone and for them to pick up, that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. And so when in that environment, and the journalists themselves that are doing this work are that same generation of people. So for them, picking up the phone is also hard. So the primary way that people communicate now is through text or through text-based you know, messenger apps or whatever. So when you receive a message from a number you don't know, and I, you know, I have no idea how these little up-and-coming journalists are like framing their text when they reach out, you know, how, cause there's like a ways that you can, you know, formulate it. So that's like a little more polite or whatever. I don't know how they're doing it, but like the point is that like it, you just, if you're going to be a journalist wor- working in an environment where like the, the society is changing a little bit and texts communication and other kinds of communication are changing, like you have to accept the fact that it means it, it can be feeling like an invasion of privacy when people you don't know are texting you to ask you stuff because like people are not, it's not like it used to be normal that if you work somewhere or live somewhere, your phone number is just accessible to anyone to call. Like now people have different expectations about that. Like, like people used to be able to show up at your door just because, you know, people, you know, they, it was there was a phone book. Mm-hmm. There was a phone book. Mm-hmm. Like you could know someone's name. You could look up their phone number. You can call them. Right. There were other ways where, where it was much more normal and standard that like a stranger could show up at your front door at your home or show up at your office and struck up a conversation or a reporter could do that. Right. Like we're living, like our society is changing. 
And you could either be like moralistic about it and hem and haw about how people don't talk on the phone anymore and how it's hard and blah, blah, blah. But the truth is that these young journalists at Northwestern are are themselves part of this generation and they're working among people of that yeah, so generation. So they got to figure it out. And so, yes, and they're in their community. And what they're doing now is they're grappling with their responsibility to their community. And that is really fucking admirable. And I want to do, you know what? I'm, I'm sorry I keep talking, but I just want to do one more thing here. I want to read you a Twitter thread from a kid named Jake Liker, who is a journalism student at Northwestern, but does not write for the Daily Northwestern. And I retweeted this thread as well, but I think he had like a very good way of putting this. Maybe you should have Jake on your show. So he said, hey... <laughs> He said, <laughs> hey, reach out to him on Twitter right he, now. He said, hey, I'm a journalism student at Northwestern. Uh -huh. So just by the way, to give credit words to this, this, this young man's Twitter handle is Jake at Jake Liker, uh, J-A-K-E-L-I-K-E-R. So he says, hey, I'm a journalism student at Northwestern. I don't write for the daily. Uh, but I have friends who do. I think the discourse on here about that editorial is missing something really important. The way I see it, that editorial, meaning the editorial the editors of the North Daily Northwestern published apologizing for mm -hmm. how they did these stories. The way I see it, that editorial was an attempt to better serve and empathize with marginalized communities voicing their displeasure. You may, you may take issue with that attempt. I take issue with some of it, but that's not the point. The point is that they tried to do something about it. One of the principal shortcomings of mainstream journalism has been and still is its failure to understand marginalized communities. I imagine that much of the people's resentment of the press stems, stems from this failure. My peers are attempting to grapple with an issue that professional newsrooms across the country are grappling with. These students should not be excoriated for making that attempt. Their editorial is not the journalistic apocalypse that, <laughs> that many are making it out to be. On the contrary, it should make us all hopeful for the journalism industry, because as I type this, I can hear my roommates having a thoughtful discussion about the notion of objectivity. This editorial is a good thing, and it shows that we're learning and we're thinking, and it means journalism students have identified a fundamental problem with the media today and are searching for solutions. And my peers may not have found an optimal solution this time. It doesn't mean you should slander them. Trust the learning process and take solace in it. Yeah, they're no, learning. They're students. Yeah, and I, I agree with the, what that kid wrote. And I've been thinking about this a lot. Uh, there was a column in the New York Times. Uh, it has a, some parallels, even it's a completely different uh, venue of marginalized people. Follow me on this. Mm -hmm. uh, Timothy Egan, who is essentially a left of center columnist for the New York Times, uh, wrote a column this weekend where he was excoriating uh, the um, uh, lefties who just have a reflective attitude of disdain uh, for Trump voters. Mm -hmm. And he was uh, talking about his sister, and his sister is a Walmart worker uh, who nonetheless voted for Donald Trump and will probably vote for him again. And um, so uh, I had fun with this when I read it, but the point is, is that... With, the challenge that Tim Egan was throwing out to lefties like myself is similar in some ways to when I'm listening to you, the challenge that, uh, the, the, the kids who run the Northwestern daily are throwing out to journalism uh, people that 
your way, your conventional way of doing something where you just grab something and use it because it fits your needs for that day don't work. And you have to, you can't just be so willful or greedy, or you have to realize that if you are willful and you are greedy and you just grab someone and use their quote and snatch their identity for that moment in time, because it fits your needs to Mm -hmm. fit that column at that moment, there could be a consequence for you as well yeah and uh the consequence could be somebody calling you up to really give you hell the consequence could be further erosion of your newspaper and your credibility as a journalist but you should really think about that relationship and i that's old news to me my i said this maybe i've thought too much about it but that's generally how i practice this business i just feel like as a as a general courtesy to another human being that I give them the opportunity to think twice before they participate with right. me. And now I'm through as a columnist, I'm through quoting people anyway, because they tell you more interesting things uh, when they're not being quoted and you can literally have a better dialogue. Uh, but so, yeah, I'm with you. That kid, Jake Liker, I think he sums it all up. This is, this is, these are young journalists trying to figure out. And they're trying not to be, and they, and they're, there are people who are understand that if they just practice what, like how you're describing this kind of extractive method of reporting, they're in a small community. They're in, they're a campus newspaper at a university that like they don't have infinite amount of people and organizations to burn through as they do their work. Like they need the trust of the community they cover and whatever, like, and of course there's going to always be like people on the right who say like, you can't trust the press because like blah, 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 blah. But, but, but like at the end of the day, like what is undermining to democracy at Northwestern university? Like, like not publishing faces of the student protesters or if you publish them and then people are terrified to protest and then no one protests Mm. and then like you know people 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 sit it out what what is what does the university community need supposedly the university says that they're about free speech and they're about you know discussion of different conflicting ideas and blah 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 like then the the newspaper is very much in their right and 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 it's commendable that they're thinking about well okay this thing that we're doing how is that going to be helping our community we're part of this community we need good relationships and trust with this community and we want people to be able to express themselves freely etc like some people of course don't want there to be any protest at all and think that that is wrong but that is an elitist and conservative and status quo oriented position and if and and journalists are supposedly like not with that you know they're about truth and justice in the american way and all that stuff you know (laughs) like um so yeah i think i think that uh I just I wish I wish I was seeing more sophisticated conversation about this from the mainstream journalist establishment, especially from places like daily newspapers that have done and I'm so a, much harm. All right, I'm going to tell you something histories. else that's going on. And I say this uh, as a boomer. Mm-hmm. Been through all, all right, let's get, let's hear a boomer. OK, I say this as a boomer who I've watched attitudes that people have as they get older. And I'm watching it. I get a little smile. Millennials are going through it. What's the next one after millennials? I forget. Gen Z. X. X is the no, next no, one. No, no, no. X is before. Let's not talk about them. 
uh, no, X, uh, yeah, Gen my, my X bad. is before my millennials. Bad. You're right. Millennials, uh, Gen X before Gen X, yeah. And I'm watching them as they get older, the, it's the age old pattern. Like they start excoriating the generation that comes after them and saying, these kids don't do it. I've, I've just watched it from yeah. my own generation, thought it was so smart. And it's kind of a worthless generation in many ways, but let's put that to the side. And that's a lot of what's going on. And I look at these 30 year olds who are in the business of journalism now, they're all been in it for maybe five years and they're just, <laughs> they're treating these 20 year olds like, oh my God, they're little what an baby. Yeah, yeah, what an entitled, <laughs> how dare they be offended that they're being texted, like blah, 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 blah. It's like, you know, like, you know, that's it's so like, boring. That's so boring. That's when such I was boring your response. age, I did X, Y, Z, you know? So yeah. I, 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 I get a part of me smiles at it. And, uh, uh, and part of me realizes, uh, I give credit to those kids at Medill. They're struggling with or Northwestern and they're struggling with something. Uh, and listen, I'm going to say this as a boomer, an old guy who's been in this business forever. I'm going to tell all you 30 year old, 40 year old journalists, the future of journalism is not being threatened by the soul searching of those kids at Northwestern. I got yep. news for you. Facebook, that's a far greater problem for the future of journalism. You're letting old boy steal all your stuff and you're dependent upon him for yep. your future. He, and he says, I'll print anything on here, lies, whatever, because I'm bringing in the revenue for it. And I don't want to hire the editors well and actually ben, i'm going to knock you down a peg because nobody cares about facebook anymore either young people they're not on facebook well they, it's all some but it's the the point is that all of it is going not to the traditional media establishment and the media is not doing itself any favors well, okay. by now freaking out about people being uncomfortable being texted by random strangers yeah well i gotta tell you something somebody cares about faith how many billions of people are, are reading facebook and i'm not particularly one of them but I'm just telling you, it, 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 Facebook is the, at the top, and then you got Twitter, et cetera, and so forth. They're taking your content, and you're helpless to stop it. And that is a far greater problem, a far greater threat, yeah. existential threat to journalism than soul searching by right. 20 year olds. And in fact, I think it shows a great deal of respect and a sense of stewardship that these editors at the Daily Northwestern now have over this institution of this newspaper that they're in charge of, of leading right now, because what they're doing is about also like it's work that will increase the credibility and protect the credibility and standing of the daily Northwestern in its community. And these kids are only there for four years, mm -hmm. you know, they're out of there soon, All but right. they need to protect something that's bigger than themselves. Hold on one second. Does you see Denise sitting out there when, we, when you came in? No, I'll take a look. All right. Uh, very good. Uh, Maya's in my, uh, in the studio with me, uh, my Denise O'Neill is my next guest. I think she's outside. Uh, she's being very polite. She doesn't want to come in and disrupt us. I understand that, uh, tremendously. Uh, anyway, we've been talking at length about, uh, what's going down in Northwestern and, uh, yes, indeed. Uh, here she is. She's I think people have probably heard all they need to hear about this issue but uh, no but it's it's it look journalists talking about journalism uh what else? you know what i'm saying we have another journalist in the studio we're going to bring her on real soon anyway maya thank you so much uh, for coming in we got denise o'neill on deck we're going to bring her on when we return
The Ben Jarofsky Show is supported by Northwestern University's part-time master's program in literature and liberal studies. Students learn from dynamic and diverse faculty as they build advanced skills for critical analysis, writing, and research. Evening classes are held on Northwestern's Evanston and Chicago campuses. The spring quarter application deadline is January 15th. Learn more at sps.northwestern.edu masters. Number five. You remember about a year ago um, when Target announced that it was leaving um, this site. There's a lot of consternation, a lot of people upset, not only because of the lack of notice, but also the, the devastating effect that this would have on the economy. And the fact that Blue Cross Blue Shields now is coming into this site and not only um, claiming the space, but bringing far more jobs and far more opportunity in this space is like... Did you know that 40% of the people in Illinois opt to be cremated? Well, it's true. And Chicagoland Cremation Options honors their wishes by providing cremation services directly to the general public. Chicagoland Cremation Options provides an affordable, ethical, and easy cremation arrangement, whether in person or online. Save thousands and streamline the process by going directly to Chicagoland Cremation Options. It's a family-owned business operated by my good friend, Douglas Klein. Here's how you reach them. ChicagolandCremationOptions.com. One more time. ChicagolandCremationOptions.com. Hey, podcast fans, that's you, right? You're listening to a podcast, so I'm assuming you're a fan. The Chicago Sun-Times political web series, The Fran Spielman Show, is now available as a podcast. You guessed it. The Fran Spielman Show features weekly interviews with the lawmakers, journalists, and others who are shaping our city. Fran holds nothing back. She goes deep into City Hall to bring you the real scoop on Chicago politics. And now you can listen to her show on all, that's A-L-L, all, of your favorite podcast apps. Head to City Hall with Fran and get even more great political coverage from the Chicago Sun-Times. Listen and subscribe now at suntimes.com forward slash Fran hyphen show. That's suntimes.com forward slash F-R-A-N hyphen show. Hour number two of your B-E-N Jarofsky show is just moments away. But before we get into that, we need to thank the following unions for sponsoring this program. First up, it's the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 and District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, and the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150. A giant thank you to those unions for jumping on board and sponsoring this program. And, of course, today's Ben Jarofsky show is brought to you by the Chicago Federation of Labor. Hour number two, let's do this. It is Tuesday, November 12th, and live from the Chicago Sun-Times, Chicago Reader Studio on Racine Avenue, this is The Ben Jarofsky Show. In this hour of the program, it's The Benny J Show debut of writer and the coolest lady in the building, all right, Denise O'Neill. And it's the return of political strategist Lori Glenn with Juanita Irizarry of Friends of the Park. And now your host, 
Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. When I started this gig at the Sun, I didn't know anybody at the Sun Times. Did knew Romana. I knew God bless Romana Hussein. I knew Romana. She's my girl. That's correct. Uh, but I didn't know anybody else. I'm walking around. I'm the new kid. Nobody knows me. Who's that weird guy with the bull's hat on? Yeah, a lot of people still uh, think that. <laughs> by the way, uh, who is that weird guy? I'll tell you what. One of the nicest people I've ever met. I was like. Can, will you be my friend? I'm walking around. Will you? Denise O'Neill said, I'll be your friend, Ben. And every, every day, a big smile. Hello, how are you doing? She's staff writer here at the Chicago Sun-Times. And uh, I've been bugging her. Denise, you're coming on the show. Denise, you're coming on the show. Well, she wrote a story uh, in today's Bright One, or excuse me, on Saturday's Bright One, uh, about uh, Keena Turner, CBS, City of Chicago, and really gets into a lot of things that, that just have always intrigued me about Chicago. So I'm ready to take the deep dive with Denise. The, one of the nicest human beings in the Chicago Sun-Times building. But before I do that, D, you got an update for me? Uh, yeah, I do here. Uh, find us on Facebook, uh, at Benny J Show, B-E-N-N-Y, the letter J Show. On uh, Twitter as well, at Benny J Show, B-E-N-N-Y, the letter J Show. If you're listening to this podcast and you have yet to uh, like or uh, follow us on social media, what's your problem? <laughs> Find us at Benny J Show, B-E-N-N-Y, the letter J Show. And hey, here's another update. Our uh, 2.30 guests are at the door. So Ooh, I'm going to wow. go outside. We really need interns. <laughs> I'm going to go outside and grab our guests. Okay. So Lori Glenn and Juanita, they're out. And it's freezing out there. So yeah, I got to get downstairs. Go do it, man. Go do it. All at right. Benny J Show, B-E-N-N-Y, the letter J Show. All right. Thank you, Dr. D. Uh, Denise. Doctor. <laughs> Don't <laughs> Denise O'Neill is her name. Welcome to the show, Denise. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Wait, now pull that mic. There you go. Um, anyway, all right, Denise, before we take the deep dive uh, into your uh, story on Keena Turner uh, and CVS Chicago Vocational, uh, talk a little bit about where you're from in the city. You're born and raised in Chicago? Born and raised in Chicago. I was actually born in Inglewood. Um, my grandmother lived in Inglewood. Um, my cousins, we all lived in one big house. My two cousins, my mom, my dad. Their mom, their dad, uh, my two older sisters, I'm third. And um, I lived there till I was like three years old. And then we moved to the southeast side. Mm -hmm. And that's where I grew up um, in the South Shore area. All right, South Shore area. So how is it that if you grew up in the South Shore area that you went to Chicago Vocational? Now, folks, uh, let me picture, show you why, in my humble opinion, Chicago Vocational is so significant. I, uh, I'm not from Chicago, Denise, but I've spent a lot of time here and I'm studying the city. Chicago Vocational uh is very significant for a couple of reasons number one it's huge it's massive yeah and it's you can see it right there when you're on uh on the expressway going into um uh the, the skyway excuse me going into indiana indiana it's as if you're heading uh south into indiana it's right there on your right and you look over out the window my good god that thing is huge uh it really is. It was an incredible school. And actually how I wound up there, I did, um, South Shore was my neighborhood school. Mm -hmm. As I said, I'm the third daughter in, and my two older sisters went to South Shore. And I always had this thing about following in their shadow. And um, so a couple of girlfriends, I graduated from Bryn Mawr, um, elementary school, right off on, right up on 74th and um, Jeffrey. And my girlfriend said, let's go take the test, because back then you had to test to get into CVS. I'm not really sure how it works now, but you had to go take a test. I went and te took the test. What kind of test was it? Um, it's like an academic test. It was like a, 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 a admittance, like when you go to take the t test to go to the Catholic schools or, you know, whatever. 
you had to take like an admittance so, test. So it's a, it's a, it's testing things like your vocabulary, your mathematical your skills. Your math, your vocabulary, your mm-hmm. English, what grade level. You know, though they had those um, standardized tests um, that we did in school anyway back in those days. They don't do those now. They call it something else. But, um, yeah, so you really had to test to get in, and then you had to pass with flying colors. And my girlfriends wanted to go, so I just said, yeah. So you go to Chicago a Vocational, enormous, thousands of kids, a couple thousand, maybe 3,000 kids. You're this little girl from South Shore. How'd you, fi- how'd you find your way? You know what? I didn't know what I was getting into. But I tell you, when we went to um, orientation night, my parents took me to orientation night, and it was like a major extravaganza. The football team was there in their jerseys and their glowing blue cheerleaders, pom-pom people, flag girls in the auditorium because the auditorium was huge enough to do all this. Mm-hmm. And I was I was just in awe. It was like an awesome school. And once I got in there, there was no regrets and no turning backs. And, and mind you, it was a male-oriented school yeah. even when I started in 1971. It was a vocational school. Yes. So did you have to take shop? Um, they had a major in one shops, but what they had for the ladies, they had like bookkeeping, accounting, and office practice. So, so you, I took wow. bookkeeping. <laughs> so time out. Would they have allowed you to take shop had you wanted to? You know, that's something I never really addressed because, I mean, I, probably, I'm going to say probably not, but I'm not 100% certain. I don't know too many, I, I don't even know any girl who was in any of the shop classes. Um, they had what they called our area was, are you ready? Petticoat Lane. <laughs> <laughs> I kid you not, and the guys could not come. Down. It was it was like one little section of the school um, where we had our gym classes, and we had home economics. I t- you know I took home economics. I took cooking. Well, what is home so economics? Home economics. Then they call it. Um, I forget what they call it now, but it's it was food, learning how to cook, and so. We had um, sewing classes, and then we would have the home economics. We would have learned how to make. I made learned how to make the ever popular tuna casserole, the even more <laughs> ever, the even more ever popular potato chip cookies. Potato but chip cookies. Potato chip cookies. But I tell you the one thing that I did learn that I carry to this day. I learned how to make a wicked white sauce, and I use that to make homemade um, pot pies. Wait a minute. Hold on. I love a white sauce, but potato chip cookies? I never heard of a potato chip cookie. Oh, okay. It was 71. It was high school. That was the menu. Potato chip cookie? (laughs) Honestly, and it's basically butter cookies with your crushed up, crumbled uh, Jay's potato chips because Jay's was out, you know, Jay's factory was right out there. So potato chips were big in our area. So potato potato chip cookies, I kid you not. Now, uh, and so, okay, so you're in Petticoat Lane, or there was a TV show back in the 60s called Petticoat (laughs) Junction. Yeah, I'm old enough to know that, too. Uh, Yeah, and uh, you and I are the only two people in in the show today uh, who know that, but Petticoat Junction, Petticoat Lane, and uh, so CVS is this normal school, and uh, in addition, uh, but by the way, CBS, I'm going to see if you can answer this trivia question, Denise. Uh, there have been, you, I think, more than any other high school on our show, CBS has had ooh, ooh, uh, more guests from CBS on this show. There have been three that I could think of. Name the other two. Lee Bay. There you go. And <laughs> you, You'll never get the other one, I don't think, because he's the next generation down from you. Juan Howard? 
Uh, no, Jawan Howard, the the great basketball player. He who, did come out of CVS, though. He did graduate. He graduated. Michael Basin? Uh, 1991, well, Jawan Howard. Well, that's okay. We okay. keep up with our Cavaliers now. Uh, the Cavaliers. Chris Zorich? Uh, no, it's it's not sports. A guy named Chris Adams, he's a movie maker. He lives on the south side of Chicago. And uh, he graduated uh, from CVS, I think, in the 80s. Don't quote me on that one. Anyway, all right. And uh, so CVS has this tre- uh, tremendous legacy of football greatness. Uh, and I love how in your story you talk about this. You talk about uh, everybody calls him Dick Butkus, but when you introduced him in the story, it was Richard Marvin Butkus. That's correct. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Right. Miller. And uh, so talk about that great tradition of football at CBS. You know, one of the reasons I talked about that is because even being a girl going into CVS, I mean, literally, when you walked into school, there was like this picture of Dick Buckus, mm-hmm. and you could not go to that school and not know who he was. You could not go to CVS and not know anything about football. I mean, learn it as you go along if you had to. But, I mean, the stands were packed. Girls, guys, the, the, the everybody, teachers, uh you know, hall guards, it, it was amazing. And um, so, yeah, and, and the Dick Buckus legacy, I didn't even really, th- obviously, I didn't really think about it till I was really doing the story, but I thought about that picture, and that's one of the first things I asked Kena about. I said, wow, coming into that school every day, I said, did that picture, you know, did it have an effect on you? Did you, you know, uh, did it, like, give you this drive or, or, you know, to play or go out for the team. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because if you read the story of anybody who's read the story, it says originally he didn't come to see. Right, out Kena, the Keenan question. I was going to get to that. Okay. Kena Turner is his name. Uh, he uh, graduated from CBS in 1978. Six, 1976, okay. Uh, and all right, now, uh, and the story is essentially a profile of him, and in, and in profiling Kena uh, Turner, uh, Denise does a good job of profiling CVS and the significance on the south side, uh, et cetera, and so forth. So tell us uh, a little bit about Kena Turner. Well, um, talking to him, I learned a lot more about him, and I had, a, I knew him when we went to school, okay, but we were, I was a year behind him, and I really didn't know him as a, per- I knew him as a football player, as one of the football players, one of the stars of our football team. Getting to know him after interviewing him, it was just a very awesome experience. He was such a humble, he, he didn't like sing his praises and say, yeah, I have four rings, hey. He was very, almost like shy and reserved mm-hmm. when talking. And then even, even one of the things he even says is like, you know, it seems like you're like making a little big too much of a deal out of my life. I said, no, Kena, you don't understand. And I said, the Chicago market market doesn't understand. I said, everybody knows Dick Buckus. Everybody knows Chris Zorch, but because they played in the market. But just imagine if if Kena had played in this market and if the Bears had won four Super Bowl rings and he was on those teams, that would have been massive. But being a Cavalier, I have to tell you, we have this thing, we say Cavaliers for life. I, I kid you not. You can be from any class. You can be from the class of 80s, the class of 90s, the class of 70s. And I tell you, at our last class reunion, there was an elderly Caucasian couple at the restaurant where we were having our Mm -hmm. um, reunion. They saw the sign, and they came into the hall, and they said, you all are CVS? And we said, Cavaliers? (laughs) And they said... Cavaliers, and they had been married. They had met at CVS, and they had been married for like fifty years. Yeah. And they came in and they had a drink with us. 
That's, yeah, that's the power of the school. Yeah, what you're getting at is uh, in that story is the demographic change that uh, it can be reflected. If you just look at class pictures at CVS, mm-hmm. just look at go back to the 40s and the 50s, and it's all white kids. Yeah, uh, that was what the southeast side was back in those days. And again, it's like 87th Street uh, on the south side as you head toward Indiana, so it's on the east side of Chicago. And then by what the 70s, it was predominantly black. I tell you, actually, when I got there in my freshman year, like the junior and senior classes, they were still predominantly white. They were trickling down to my freshman class. There was still Caucasian and and the uh, sophomore in our freshman class. To give you the perspective of how quickly it changed in those four years, there Mm -hmm. was only one Caucasian female who graduated um, in in the entire class, and we were a class of 733. Wow, you went from predominantly, that is called racial change in the city of Chicago, ladies and gentlemen. Now, when you were a freshman, was, uh, did the white kids in the cafeteria sit where they sat and the black kids sit where they sit? Was there any kind of social integration within the school itself? I, you know what? I think everybody just did their own thing, really. I, I don't remember any outright discrimination. And I think because not only was it a mix of black and white. It was just Chicago vocation was like a feeder school. You could come from anywhere in the city mm-hmm. and go to CVS. It wasn't like your local, like the only school I could have gone to outside of my local high school would have been a vocational school or a trade school. Otherwise, if I went to a regular Chicago public school, it would have had to be the one in your community, which would have been South Shore. So people came from Inglewood. People came from South Shore, they came from all different areas to go to CVS. So in that sense, I didn't really, or maybe I just wasn't aware because it did transition so quickly. But then again, I I had gone through that same transitioning when we moved further into South Shore, Mm -hmm. when I, I, like in sixth grade. And it was like the overnight, I hate to say the word, but white flight. I went, I had friends in sixth grade that when I came back, I'm like, where Susan, where, you know, and I didn't know anything about white flight. And then as I grew older and understood, it's like, wow, that's what happened. You know, all like the, you know, all the Caucasian kids were gone. Yeah, that is the history of the city of Chicago that we grew up with in the 70s yes, uh, and into the 80s. When I first moved to Chicago, uh, at Denise, I remember they told us that the dividing line in the city on the southwest side, it's, it used to be Halstead. Uh, so follow me in this. And black people lived on the east side of Halstead and the white people lived on the west side of Halstead. And then I just watched it. That dividing line moved further and further west. And then it was Ashland. And then it was Western. And then, you know what I'm saying? And now it's like Kedzie or something. I don't know what it is now, what the official line mm-hmm. is. Maybe maybe those demarcations are have lost some of their uh, their meaning now uh, that we're in the 21st century. But I watched it in the 80s move further and further west as these demographic changes, white people moving out. Yeah, I, you watched it and I lived it. I mean, even living on the South Shore and going, living in the South Shore and going like to stores like Spiegel's, these Spiegel's warehouse used to be down in Bridgeport and seriously it was like okay we got to go do what we have to do and then we got to be gone (laughs) (laughs) get out of Bridgeport you know what but that's so funny how much Bridgeport has changed it has it has I but you know and thank God because It, it was a serious thing 
Yeah. You, you know, you go to Evergreen Plaza at one point in time, which I don't even think that exists anymore. But, you know, over on 95th and Western. Yeah, 95th Western and Western. And, Vic, and it was like, okay, you got to go in, do your shopping. Don't sit down in the Walgreens or the little wags, as they were called. Mm-hmm. They had the little eating uh, places within Walgreens. And, you know, you just did your shopping and you had to go. Yeah, no, I, I uh, Evergreen Plaza was a shopping mall uh, in Evergreen Park just across the border from Chicago. And so many black people from Chicago went there to shop. And I would tell them, I go, you realize that's a all white you're giving your tax dollars to this all white suburb but where there's no other place to shop they would say on the on the far south side so uh strange it's just race relations in the city of chicago denise now something else about keena turner that i liked about this great football player went uh, to cvs went on to the san francisco 49ers played for purdue uh, four super bowl rings good friend of joe montana superstar still works for the 49ers etc etc he's still lamenting I can't believe it. Keeney, you got to get over this. He's no. still lamenting that when he was a, a high school kid at CVS, they lost to Brother Rice in the prep bowl, and he didn't win the prep bowl. He never won. They, they, were shut. they still haven't scored a touchdown in either of those two games. They played Brother Rice, and what was the other Catholic? St. Lawrence. St. Lawrence. So this is the significance of the prep bowl that's kind of lost to time. Yeah. The, the number one Catholic school in the city uh, would do battle with the number one uh, public school in the city at a big game at Soldier Field uh, around Thanksgiving. And the Catholic schools, I was always rooting for the public schools, but the Catholic schools would always win, Denise. I do have to say, we did take it the year after Tina graduated. Is we won right? the city title against St. Rita. You mean yes. won the prep bowl against St. Yeah, Rita? Yeah, the prep bowl, yes. We won the prep bowl in 70, that would be 76, against St. Rita. Well, that's what he's mad about. He couldn't li- <laughs> it couldn't go anywhere without some CBS grad going, uh, Kina, once you left, we right, won. Right. <laughs> uh, no, but um, it, it was interesting because I was I, I started out with my you won four Super Bowl, and I was trying to just do it from a profile from I think he's probably the only Chicago public school um, kid that won three super, uh, four, four super, super I'm sorry, four super Super Bowls. Mm-hmm. And if he isn't, I'm almost 100% certain he's the only one that won four Super Bowls on the same team within 11 years of a career. Mm-hmm. He won. He only played for 11 seasons well, and wore four of those games in those 11 seasons. Yeah, well, f- uh, 11 seasons in the NFL is no joke. I mean, it's a pretty brutal game. So, yeah. uh, and and what is it? What's Keenan Turner doing now? Right now, he's hanging with the big guys in the 49ers organization. Then he's um he's vice president and senior advisor to John Lynch, who is the general manager for the 49ers. Yeah. So his heart is he still out in San Francisco? He's, does he still have family here in Chicago? Um, in fact, I talked to him after the story. He called me. He had snuck into town um, to see his his daughter's birth. It was his daughter's birthday. And he, his pop actually saw the story, and uh, he said, hey, there's a story about you in the Sun-Times. And then that's why and, and he actually called me yesterday to tell me how much he liked the story and how much his dad liked the story. Um, I just felt like... Like I said, Buckus, I, I, don't get me wrong, I love Dick Buckus. I love me some Bears. Um, and I was upset when the 49ers actually beat the Bears in that 89 um, NFC championship. But, um, you know, it, it just, to me, and being a Cavalier and understanding the history, I mean, when I say the history, Coach O'Brien was like one of the most revered football coaches in probably, I'm going to say, 
definitely in Chicago and Illinois, but he was very well known around the country. Well, I mean, no, he that, was big. That was an interesting part of your story. Let's talk about that. There was this was a uh, a white man who uh, was a gym teacher, obviously at CVS, and there was a football coach when the school uh, was mostly white. And he stayed on with that position as uh, the school became mostly black. And Keena Turner talked about him with reverence uh, as a man who had a, a big role in steering him uh, to the, f- the f- great future that he had. Yeah, and, and really, I'm not even sure if he was a teacher. I just know he was like the head football coach, and they had recruited him. Um, he was actually um, Dick Buckus's coach as well. And, and that's one of the things Keena talked about, how... He, he said it was all about the players. He said for O'Brien, it was all about his players. He, he, he actually said he didn't care about the color of the, of, the, of the kid's skin. He said, and another thing he said, which I thought was really awesome, that he just wanted his guys to play. He didn't, he wasn't, he drove them. He had to drive to win, but he wasn't like win at all costs. He was like play honorably, play fair, and play good. And at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. And that's what he taught his players. And even though, and maybe that's why I, I was thinking, you know, myself, because I didn't, you know, I didn't want to really go into Kena's head. I don't even know if he could have explained it. But I'm thinking, you know, they really wanted to win for the coach, too. They really wanted to win, win for O'Brien. Mm-hmm. Um, because he was such a, a Tina, I mean, Kena said he was like the best, I mean, he was a mentor. He, you know, he steered them towards Purdue. He, he, he could talk to him. He mentored him. Do you ever go back to your alma mater? How often do you go um, back? I haven't been back um, for a while. I used to go back frequently when I first, you know, graduated. I'm still in contact with, I'm actually still in contact with my homeroom teacher. Um, our principal, Mr. Brown, just passed. Um, he was huge, not only in the school system, but he was in politics as well. Uh, and I, we're still very much in contact. Every time there's a funeral or somebody dies, like, Coach Pataki's son, he was a coach under O'Brien. His son died, and there's a massive email to the email to the Cavalier family saying, you know, here's the, here's the, um, where the repast and here's where the service is going to be. You know, we still do that kind of thing. We actually have a website, our, you know, Chicago Vocation. I know, I know most schools do, but whereas ours is pretty interactive, and it, we have an inner class one, and then we have a 75, class of 75 one. So, see, I just want to say, being a Cavalier was something special. It really was, and it really is. And most of the people, I'm not going to say everybody, because, you know, you have your uh, CVS. You have those, but for the most part, we're all glad to see one another. We're happy to get together. We love our class reunions. Um, you know, for our, for most of us, it was good times. Mm. All right, that is uh, Denise O'Neill, and the story is Turner still missing prep in his step. Pretty funny. It's part of the, it's in the sun, uh, Saturday's sports special in the Sun-Times. We've talked about this every Saturday. The Chicago Sun-Times uh, has a, a f- special sports section it's really good stuff it's long-form journalism about sports and uh i I encourage everybody to check it out denise thank you so much a for writing a great story b for coming on the show and c for saying i'll be your friend at the chicago your friend your one and only friend Ben. (laughs) well no there's also romana anyway uh uh, denise o'neill is her name and uh we're gonna let her go we're gonna take a break and bring on our next guests who are in the studio i love it when my guests show up juanita irizari (laughs) and Lori glenn talking politics we'll be right back after this Read the Chicago Reader to get up to speed on what's what in Chicago. Culture. 
food, arts and entertainment, weekly concert listings, weekly event listings, the environment, travel. I can continue, but you get the point. And for all of you Chicago political junkies, raw weekly columns on real city politics from Maya Dukmasova and our very own Ben Jarofsky. The Chicago Reader, free to the public in newsstands throughout the city and online at chicagoreader.com. Read it now and be a more informed Chicagoan. The Ben Jarofsky Show is supported by Northwestern University's part-time master's program in literature and liberal studies. Students learn from dynamic and diverse faculty as they build advanced skills for critical analysis, writing, and research. Evening classes are held on Northwestern's Evanston and Chicago campuses. The spring quarter application deadline is January 15th. Learn more at sps.northwestern.edu slash masters. Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show, live from the Chicago Sun-Times. Lori Glenn, Juanita Irizarry in the studio. We're ready to talk politics, 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 politics. Before we do that, D, you got an update? Uh, our guests are here. They have water. They're doing great. Follow us online at Benny J Show, B-E-N-N-Y, the letter J Show, both Twitter and Facebook. Be great to have you as friends. All right. Thank you for that update. Uh, Juanita and Lori were guests. We did a, uh, a well, Lori's been on the show like five times. I think Lori owns the show. Uh, and uh, But we had the two of you together. I think it was about two months ago. Yeah, it was like, Ben, you're too hard on Mayor Lightfoot. And you guys came in with more or less uh, telling me, uh, not to be so critical, give her some time, et cetera, and so forth. And you were such a great combination, a one-two punch that we're bringing you back as a dynamic duo. Uh, awesome. Okay. Nice and uh, to be here. Uh, uh, so we got national news to cover uh, and uh, lots of national news to cover. Lori Glenn, before she was in Chicago, she's our resident Nancy Pelosi expert. Because <laughs> Lori Glenn Spencer, I don't know if you know this San one, either. San Francisco, Absolutely. yeah. She was like that hippie girl out in San Francisco. So she knows all about Nancy Pelosi. Oh, so let's see God. if she's going to, uh, her thoughts on Nancy Pelosi uh, in impeachment. But before we do, uh, Juanita, you were telling me just before we went on uh, in your day job with Friends of the Park that uh, Michelle Obama threw you some love. So talk about that before we take yeah, the deep dive. Yeah, well, a, fr politics. a friend of mine from, from Texas wrote, reached out to me to say, I, I hear the first lady threw you some shade today. And I was like, ah, my friend has no idea what she's talking about. She's too far away to really know what's going on and then I saw all the quotes that have been used over and over again about the friends who protect the parks but how nobody uses the park from the community so I, I figured that was a little shade and I figure I, I've maybe arrived if the former first lady is throwing shade at me now what was it in particularly uh what was she alluding to yeah well you know the Obamas were in town for their summit um at the you know promoting the place, promoting the, the presidential center this year, actually with a real focus on the location and kind of defending why they chose Jackson Park. Um, and so she was saying that they wouldn't do anything crappy. They wouldn't bring, that was her word, crap. You know, trust us that we wouldn't bring crap to this place. And that, you know, basically slamming the folks that have questions about the public policy issues, about the location, um, you know, about the community benefits agreement and things like that. Well, there's a lot of issues with the Obama Center in Jackson Park, uh, starting with the community benefits agreement, starting with the notion, I think there's two big issues, uh, starting with the notion that we're putting it in a park. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember Juanita, I've said, I think I may have said this the last time in the show, I remember the hearing that uh, goes back to 2015. I want, good yep. God, time is flying yep. on. Uh, it was at uh, Hyde Park High School. Place was packed. And the overwhelming consensus of people there, 
who spoke out was that they, wherever the Obamas wanted it, that's where they wanted it to be. And so I kind of backed off. Yeah. I haven't written about it because I don't really champion issues uh, that the local community doesn't seem to be fired up on. That said, uh, I'm just going to throw my personal opinion out here. Yeah. I think the Obamas have not done a great job uh, of reaching out to the community in terms of a community benefits agreement. And I do think they've run rough on anybody who's dared to criticize them for putting the museum in a park. Yeah. Uh, that's just my personal opinion about it and then so many people when i say that i need to go ben you live on the north side so okay well all right doesn't mean i get to vote for alderman in the 20th ward or the fifth ward but i do have to get to get opinion about it do i not yeah i mean it's a really complicated issue and you know i personally attend a lot of meetings um down in the in the community around jackson park and we actually have a pretty deep base board members longtime members of friends of the parks many who actually walk the streets with barack obama when he first ran for office and who are actually quite confused because they don't recognize the obama that they see coming back and wanting to just impose upon the community the location decision um, rather than being more engaged in in conversation, um, and 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 Barack Obama had come to Friends of the Parks back when he was um, an organizer, asking for help to expand green space on the South Side. So people just look at me with this confusion, and so many folks have said to me, Juanita, you just need to talk to the Obamas directly because this isn't really them; this is their handlers. But both um, both <laughs> Michelle and Barack's comments, um, with all due respect to them, you know, on the other day while they were in town, make it very clear that they are very um, personally invested in the location decision. And, you know, we all want this in Chicago. We all want it on the south side. I just think there are folks who think the same impact could have been brought while using vacant land. And there are folks who definitely are concerned about gentrification, which I know very well in my own community in Humboldt Park. Yeah. Well, let me just say this. I always point this out. We all want it on the south side. That's not true. I supported putting it on the west side. Of course, I was crushed. Yeah. Or whatever. Well, I always point that out. Yeah. But he is from the south side, and, and so is Michelle, so that's good. But uh, there is Actually, this huge... he is from Hawaii. Yes, okay. okay. We can go I thought he that. was from Africa. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, no, that's Donald Trump. No, but actually, there is this really large, empty parcel of there's land. 11 acres of vacant land across the street from washington park so i mean we think that could have really done Been a good thing for that corner and could have enhanced washington park and yeah. and happy to take anyone down there because actually it's also right near it's right uh, by the l station the l station and it's just a perfect location for a perfect library for a former president who is a community organizer yeah. and also let us talk about a community benefits agreement regardless of location and uh, our former president who was a former organizer for a short period of time knows that a CBA he is not. A CBA is a written document, an agreement between an institution, which is what this museum and library would be, and the community. And there was no reason to not have a CBA. There's just no reason not to. And it's not that the community is being distrustful. It's actually about just having a letter of agreement that in any business transaction and building that museum is a massive business transaction mm -hmm. that we all want in Chicago. Yes. No, I'm, when I'm listening to you uh, say that, Lori, it, I don't want to go back and relitigate the teacher strike, but this was, again, 
an issue in the teacher strike when it came to uh, nurses and uh, social workers and counselors. The union was insisting that it would be put in a contract, a contractual obligation. And there has been a long history in the city of Chicago of the uh, powers that be in the city not wanting to make a commitment, a direct commitment to to ordinary human beings. Let's just put it that way. People who don't have the same standing as, let's say, the University of Chicago. The University of Chicago and uh, the city of Chicago and the, the, the Obama Center Library will have an agreement a written agreement that provides the sets out the rights that each institution has over that parcel of land I guarantee you that but for apparently those the that citizens, right the, the community the, yeah ordinary yeah. citizens you know who pay, who pay the taxes etc and so forth don't have those rights that's an old story here in the city of chicago that goes back many many years and one i know we're here to i'm going to move on and get Lori talking but just seeing it i just you have to address this issue because um there's this counterpunch uh against friends of the park that I've, I've watched goes back many years whenever friends of the park weighs in on an issue to protect park space or to preserve park space the first reaction uh, more more often than not they're elitists they're white they're North Siders. They don't belong here. Uh, and uh, so shut up and go away. This is such a classic rea- Chicago sure. reaction to anything. So yeah. deal with that. Yeah, thank you so much. You know, that's one of the things that breaks my heart in the current debate is that this has become, again, such a racialized issue when it doesn't have to be that. Um, you know, Friends of the Parks is often confused these days with Protect Our Parks, which is the group that's actually suing over the, the Obama um, Center being in a park. But we still take the heat for it. But I figure people think we're so powerful and we do everything that keeps them scared. Okay. But the reality is, you know, I'm a Puerto Rican girl from Humboldt Park who was raised to who was brought in to run this organization. And when I walked into Friends of the Parks, though there's definitely been work to do there, we had an African-American director of policy. We had an African-American board um, chair of our policy committee. We didn't have any Latinos, and now we have some because they brought my leadership on board. But it's a bit of a, you know, how is it that we believe the things that Rahm Emanuel uses his spin machine to do to to kind of make this organization look like the racist, elitist, Chardonnay drinking folks that they called us, right? And if you believe the same mayor who brought us the Laquan McDonald cover-up, I just don't know what to do with that, personally. Um, That said, Friends of the Parks really is doing a lot of work to try to diversify our board further. We have a revised mission statement since then, which really centers equity, and we're really focused on mobilizing and equipping community to say what they think, you know, and we might not always even agree, um, but we do think it's important that local communities uh, speak into most recently, there's a thing the mayor's trying to do around opening up parks to put cell towers in the parks. We have freaked out about that. We hope other Chicagoans will freak out about that. But what we're asking the mayor's office to do is create a real process to engage around that. If other Chicagoans think there should be cell towers in parks, then I guess we should all talk about that, right? But that's the process and the approach that we're taking because we're not that thing that tr- folks try to make us out to be. Yeah, no, I remember uh, I, I when the, the fight over the Lucas Museum, I don't know if you were there for that one. I came in before the lawsuit was finalized, yeah. like kind of right in the middle of it all. Uh, the fight in the Lucas Museum, bam! Uh, yeah. th- which is not 
uh, in a South Side neighborhood. It's lakefront property. Yep. Boom. Well, and the question I always ask, and there's, like, there's like 25 other construction projects going on at the time, and where's all the jobs for black people there, right? Somehow the Lucas Museum was centered as the way to create economic development for the South Side. Yeah. And that just seemed ridiculous to me if, if our mayor wasn't making you know, job opportunities available to African Americans through all the other economic development going on in Chicago. Why should the Lucas Museum hold that bag? Plus, it all could have happened if it were just built in another place that was legal. But yeah. we'll leave it at that. No, but it's 101 of the counterpunch. And 101 of the counterpunch is to put the opponents on a defensive, look for any way you could do it. And yep. if you could play the, the race card right. uh, and, uh, and get the Friends of the Parks, you know, defensive about that. Right. Uh, then you've progressed uh, in, term, in least on that front. And right. maybe some aldermen will back right. off. Well, there's a bunch of white people telling us yeah. what to do with our parks. And it's unfortunate that that same tack is being used by the Obamas, unfortunately, in this situation. All right. But uh, let's move on. Let's move on uh, from the local to talk to the national. Uh, Lori Glenn, as I said, you're a Nancy Pelosi expert uh, <laughs> because you were a political strategist in the state of California back in the day. And you uh, worked with or uh, with Nancy Pelosi. Know a thing or two about her tomorrow. Uh, the public hearings begin in the impeachment process uh, of Donald John Trump. And uh, so let's just start with the basics. How do you think the Democrats in Congress are handling it so far? Uh, well, I'm, I'm glad they're doing it. I think that they had no choice at this point. And I think uh, it's going to be an interesting, how do I think they're handling it? Um, I think they're doing the best they can given the fact that the party is a divided party because it's not a singular voice. Um, you see that in all the 235 candidates running for president. And there's two more now, Bloomberg and now possibly Deval Patrick, because uh, they clearly don't have confidence that the chosen candidate uh, by Mr. Biden is uh, capable of actually going off over the finish line. So um, I think that it makes it difficult for them, uh, more difficult. But I think that the person who we call our president uh, has just brought us to a point where there is this thing, I think I've talked about this before, the rule of law. And there's just at some point, if we are going to stand up for our democracy, I actually think Nancy Pelosi waited strategically as long as she possibly could until she absolutely couldn't not, uh, I don't want to say pull the trigger because I do all this work on public safety, but <laughs> she actually just couldn't not do it. And I think yeah. she's quite conservative on this. I think there were more radical elements of the Democratic Party that have been calling for his impeachment for months and months and months. And then finally, she said, enough is enough. And I think that it's appalling that the Republicans are uh, sitting there as if they're they're. It's just that we're we're just allowing Reality has shifted so much under this person, what is allowable in the public sphere. And uh, I think it's a very dangerous time and that you do have to at some point say, if our democracy is going to survive, we have to say the rule of law means something. And he crossed over the line. Yeah, I, I have a lot of uh, evangelical friends and family. So we talk a lot about 
Republican versus Democrat and all of that. But, you know, what's very clear to me is this is about Trump, not about Republican versus Democrat. This is about the office of the president and the way that this president has completely desecrated it, right? And so if we care about our democracy, if we care about the Constitution, despite its flaws, despite our founding fathers' flaws, um, we have had a system that has fairly worked. Obviously, there's lots of equity questions for communities of color still in our history, obviously. But we we need to protect our democracy, and we cannot do that with a president who's run amok. Amok, yes. Well, uh, to that point, uh, Juanita, and I've been in the bubble for a couple hours, but the last stories I read about this uh, made it clear that the Republicans were going to vote as one on this issue. In other words, they were going to vote not to impeach, which presumably would lead to a vote in the Senate, if we ever get to that, uh, to uh, acquit him, uh, Trump, of all charges. Uh, their argument has shifted, uh, Juanita. Is, so it began, it began with, um, well, the evidence was not that uh, he was uh, trading this for that or shaking down or extorting. The evidence is muted. We can't believe it. We need to hear uh, more people testify. And now they're saying, yeah, he did it. So what? And uh, I just I have great delight at this because I've been spending so much of the earlier the show talking about what's going on with uh, Louis Arroyo uh, in 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 Chicago. And uh, I'm just it'd be as though Michael Joseph Madigan were to announce. Yeah. Yeah, he was bribing. So what? That's right. Jacob, but you know, it's it, 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 the Republican Party has positioned itself now where Donald Trump can do no wrong. Their official position is that anything he does, regardless of the um, evidence against him, acquits him. It's justifiable. I, I mean, I think to their own detriment in the end, I think the American people are going to watch proceedings are going to hear what's going on. And I think the majority of them are going to say the Republicans have sold out our country. I think that's where it will ultimately go, as scary as it may be, while we watch it all unfold. So I saw this movie, Jojo Rabbit, which I recommend everyone see. And have you seen it? No. Oh, you've got to With see it. With the Hitler? It. And so there's this little boy whose imaginary friend, my imaginary friend was ghosty. His imaginary friend was Hitler. And his mother, Scarlett Johansson, what a lucky boy, was hiding uh, a young woman, a young girl, a teenager up in the attic or in the wall of the bedroom of his deceased sister. But what was really, and it's a brilliantly done film, and but it starts out with uh, the Beatles uh, having one of their great early sort of songs and but the footage is not of the Beatles being, you know, mobbed by girls and, you know, boys and everyone swooning. It's for Hitler. And so they have a whole montage of Hitler, and we forget how charismatic Hitler was for the German people. And there were hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people in these images who were swooning for him, literally physically swooning, and young kids just, Hitler, 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 I mean, just loved him. So uh, I think that... I was horrified because there's this moment in time they say there was, you know, they say <laughs> there was a stadium filled with 20,000 people who were applauding Donald Trump. Yep. You know, that to me 
as an American is a very, very, scary. very horrifying moment. And I think so. We can't assume, actually, Donald Trump has done what I would have actually advised <laughs> Mr. Obama if he'd been my client to do, which is he's played to his base completely, consistently. He has done and is doing exactly what he told the people that elected him or supposedly elected him that he would do. And the problem in the Democratic Party is that it's more complicated because the people who become Democrats are actually in some ways a more complicated group. And there are many different sort of factions of it. And also, I would say, perhaps they become more complex thinkers because you look at an issue and it generally has actually 10 different positions. There isn't, but mm -hmm. with Trump's sort of base, it's, you know, I don't have jobs and it's Juanita's fault. Yep. It's, you know, all these Latinos and they're taking my job though. Oh, by the way, reverse immigration. There are more people moving back to Mexico than they are moving into the United States right now. Right, the data doesn't matter at all. And, they, yeah. and we are having a massive employment problem in several key industries, in the hotel industry, in the restaurant industry, and in all the key jobs that the Latino community has done such an, a great job of and entering to the United States and building on their own entrepreneurialism. So, so I mean, I don't discount that. I think there's definitely always going to be the people that support Trump. I guess what I'm counting on is some of the more reasonable people who are recognizing, it's just in my own experience in my circles, that this is out of hand. There are some. That I, you know, it's moving slowly. But the more that it all comes to light, and it's not just what they've heard somebody say about what was on Fox News last night, but when really the coverage is more available and folks well, hear their stories. Maybe they'll figure it out. I'm hoping at least. If if there is a a, a strategy to what uh, how Nancy Pelosi has allowed this to uh, develop, it would be along those lines, Juanita. And that is this: um, she's bending over backwards, not to look partisan, correct? Not to look as though she's prejudging Donald Trump, even though he just <laughs> is giving her the middle finger every t chance yeah. he gets. And uh, is is uh, allowed these impeachment proceedings to uh, unfold to this moment uh, because he has been so defiant uh, and so just uh, out front about breaking all the rules and and feeling as if he's free to do so. And the notion that Democrats, mainstream Democrats, align with is if we, the Democrats, can merely present these facts to the American people that a majority of the American people are good people who are not under the sway of Donald Trump mm -hmm. and they will move to the Democratic side to elect a Democratic president if for no other reason and a Democratic Congress and maybe even a Democratic Senate if for no other reason then they've come to the decision that if you look at the hard facts, Donald Trump is bad for this country. His behavior cannot be tolerated. Do you share Juanita? Mm -hmm. Now you say you come from family, you have evangelicals, you have some Trump supporters. Mm -hmm. Do you share the Democrats' faith in the American people? I do. Um, I, I will say I don't argue with my Trump-loving family members that they need to vote Democrat this next time. I just vote that I argue with them over whether Trump is ruining the country and 
doing everything opposite of all the things they ever taught me about what who we were supposed to be and how we were supposed to act, both religiously and in the context of politics. Um, but I do, I do believe and have this hope that that people will move towards the Democratic Party in this next um, cycle. Well, we have seen this last week in a very positive moment that Kentucky decided it would be democratic govern you know have a democratic governor and we uh, saw Virginia take back both houses to become democratic so that must have been a little scary for the Republicans to see in the heartland and also Mr. Trump did make this uh, basically I'm here and this is a vote on me so they voted against you, mm-hmm. you know, it, particularly in Kentucky. In, in Kentucky, because he did fill that twenty thousand. I'm still wondering were those real people or were they filled <laughs> in? Yeah. I'm just not quite sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I do think that in the end, good will prevail. As uh, some Facebook post had it, we're two for two. We did win World War Two. We got rid of you know, and uh, you know, we we have won some battles against fascism and the dark forces of evil. Um, and one can hope that we can find a cal- candidate that will galvanize the American public's imagination. Well, let's get to that. Is there any? Are, when you look at the uh, <laughs> the democratic. Uh, process it's 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 baffling Lori. you you alluded to this i mean here we are we've had i forget how many debates we've dutifully covered them here on this show uh we've had analysis people going through elizabeth warren bernie sanders joe biden amy klobuchar cory booker pete Buttigieg, going down the list of people they've been in the race now for six months seven months they've been to debates they're all over iowa they're going to new hampshire and all of a sudden mike bloomberg the former mayor of this uh, new york city and now patrick duvall the former governor of massachusetts Choose to have take a look at this process and said, forget that. We're just going to jump in the race. Uh, and the notion that they're following up on is that Democrats are dissatisfied with the candidates that they have and are looking for somebody else. And so the whole process, uh, we're just supposed to ignore the seven months that just went down. I think I'm the centrists are freaking out. It's not that all of Democratic right. pro, you know, candidates are not doing well. It's that the neoliberals are <laughs> concerned that it's not going their way. Yes, I, I think they're actually lining up behind Buttigieg, as we see. I think Rahm's people, as they he comes to Chicago all the time, they're lining his pockets up. They're trying to, like, anoint him. Because and I don't dislike this man. I saw him speak. I don't think what he says is bad at all. But I always follow the money. And what concerns me is, you know, uh, that the the mainstream of the Democratic Party, you know, looks at Bernie. I still love Bernie. I don't know why it's so funny. You know, he's just like he's just an old Jewish guy who says, yeah, I'm a democratic socialist and I believe in this and that and the other thing. And I just like his honesty about it, you know, that he believes his values are, yes, we should have less in the military government, you know, budget and we should have more in schools and we should have education. And Elizabeth Warren, um, I, I'm I want to think that America will vote for Elizabeth Warren. I feel like America is still so sexist is the problem. And I feel that's why the mainstream Democrats, they're like going, okay, we can maybe control this guy Buttigieg, 
for some reason, and I don't know you, Mr. Budacek, so don't get mad at me if you listen to this, but I, I am... I gave $100 to Klobuchar the other day on Facebook. <laughs> Out of the so blue. So much for loving Bernie. I don't know why I did it. Well, Bernie has got some health issues, and that does really, I'm sorry, the reality is that he is, as I said, an old Jewish guy, and I'm Jewish, so I can say this, and I just worry about his health, and then it becomes very important who that VP is. But, um, you know, I was thinking, why isn't Klobuchar, you know, she's not as charismatic, but she actually is a very earnest, she's middle America, you know, she's, uh, I don't know, she grabbed me at one debate at one point, I thought, now this is a candidate that America could maybe really galvanize around because a lot of people could see in her some common sense thinking that wasn't extreme on either side. But I don't think she, none of them are tracking. The fact is, is that we're still deeply fragmented and confused and that no one has emerged and Biden is going down. Well, you know, speaking of Biden, I heard him speak when I was in Boston for grad school, um, back when he was running for president a long time ago. And he said a lot of things in a sort of private public space that made me think I'm never going to vote for that guy. <laughs> um, so that's how I feel about Biden. Um, the, the other thing that comes to mind, the last time around, I was in the middle of buying a house and our, our real estate um, guy was Palestinian. And he said, you know, Bernie Sanders is a good guy if this Palestinian is going to vote for that Jew, you know, and right. I, that was really meaningful to me. And I still hold that pretty deeply. So, well, I, yeah. you know, I'm gonna. I've been thinking about this a lot. I, re, I just wrote a column about this for the, uh, the readers. It hasn't come out yet, uh, and uh, I, I was slow to criticize. I'm always slow to criticize the mainstream media, uh, but I've, as I get older, I do it more and more, Juanita. Uh, but it seems to me, and all my Bernie bro friends and us uh, are going to be laughing. Be about time you said this, Ben. But it seems to me there's definitely a bias against Bernie Sanders. Yeah. And let's uh, put aside oh. the health issues yeah. and the age issues, but it it's it's like when a poll comes out, the New York Times just had this poll that showed Bernie ahead of Trump and all the swing states, Wisconsin, Michigan, and, and they go, well, those are just uh, uh, registered voters. They don't count. We need to look at likely voters. And I'm thinking, well, if the registered voters, the people who are eligible to vote, are saying that they want Bernie Sanders, they're probably going to turn out to vote if Bernie is the nominee. Well, that's the whole point. And, and so that's it's like right. you want to dismiss those people and their opinions because they're not for a candidate that you support. Yeah. What do you think? I about mean, that? I think there's obvious bias. I think it's incredibly problematic. Um, and we, we're seeing that, you know, when my family will talk about, oh, there's all that bias on MSNBC or whatever, you know, I try not to dismiss it. Obviously, I, you know, I do say, well, let's compare that to Fox News. But we do have a problem that we don't have real truth in reporting. And, and that's a big problem all around. We could start talking about Facebook and all these other ways in which we are bombarded with untruth in this um, political cycle. And, and it's, again, a problem for our democracy, I think. Well, I think we do have to look at, though, uh, what happened in Kentucky and what happened in Virginia. And what I'd like to know is what was the ground game like in there? 
So I talked about this, I think, earlier one show, which is really there are people organizing out in America today, and it's not about a candidate. It's about taking back the democracy. It's about, you know, millions of people have been thrown off the rolls, the voting rolls, right? They're trying to get rid of people of color so they don't vote. Uh, there are some people trying to stop that. There are people who are actually doing community organizing and door-to-door electoral organizing to engage people on the ground. So in some ways, I look for that, like how strong a ground game. I think a ground game is really important, you know, and that is what will engage people to turn out to vote. But that's something the Democratic Party has to really invest in. That's right. I I do think whether it's Bernie or whether it's Elizabeth Warren, I look at things I see on my Facebook feed about Wisconsin and all of these farmers who are having to declare bankruptcy. You know, there are commit suicide. Yeah. You know, there are these folks that we might not have thought as part of the Democratic base who I do think are not going to pick a centrist candidate. And they do see someone like a Bernie Sanders or an Elizabeth Warren maybe actually speaking to their issues. So whichever of those folks it is, despite the bias that we've just talked about, I do think that ground game and not writing off voters like that is very important in this race. Well, do you, uh, you, you mentioned it, uh, you, 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 this impulse you had, uh, and you sent out a hundred dollars <laughs> to Amy Klobuchar, which caught me I off guard. I know, I was thinking, what was I, I thinking? I don't know, I, don't know I was you were really quite confused one. after that, but I just wanted to sort of say, you know, so she is middle America. So to the Democratic Party, you want a mil- you want middle America? Well, go get someone who represents them, mm-hmm. who's not, you know, a great beauty or really brilliant or really, you know, has a designer suit on or has everything, but she's just a woman who went into politics because some things happened to some of her friends and she got engaged and she just I'd like them to have some common sense so that people who aren't as left or right or whatever can come in and say, yeah, that makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Even if you're going to talk about school or education, if you're going to talk about health care, um, and I've been really hit hard with health care. So, but you've got to make it so that people who aren't involved in the game, like we're involved in the game, right that they can feel this and go, yeah, I trust that person. I think that person's gonna do a good job. Well, okay, you're talking about uh, two separate things here. One is a vibration uh, that a person puts out uh, that wins people over, a charisma or a, a sense of competence or a sense of compassion. And so that Barack Obama is the epitome of that. Barack Obama, 2008, uh, somebody in this room is rolling her eyes at the mention, but you got to re- recognize this. Barack Obama uh, emanated in 2008. Why did you roll your eyes? Yeah, yeah it was not me. I was thinking about the party I had at my house when Barack Obama. Barack Obama. Yes. Yeah. Certain people were rolling their eyes were doing cartwheels in 2008 when Barack Obama no. was elected oh, president. No. Oh, no. Okay. But, all right. Maybe not. All right. Mm-hmm. So, but he did inspire people and gave them a sense uh, of, of compassion and hope, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, and there's that. And then there's what Bernie represents, which is something very specific. 
I believe in X, Y, Z. And he's very concrete and he's very forceful and you know absolutely what he stands for. And it seems to and me- And I love that. And I love it too. <laughs> I voted for him in 2016. Me and it too. seems to me the me Democratic too. Party, well, everybody, everybody in this room voted for Bernie Sanders in 2016. Uh, it seems to me the Democratic Party the great majority of the Democratic Party, the people who run the party, are do not want to have a candidate who... Because he's uncontrollable. He is not controllable by the money, guys. Look at you've always got to follow the money. And where is Wall Street putting their money? Where are the That's big right. donors? Where are the big fat cats, so to speak, putting their money. And I'm telling you, that's where the Democratic Party is going. And they're not going to go for Bernie because Bernie's track record is basically F you. I don't really care. <laughs> I didn't say it. Yeah. I didn't say it. I just kind of <laughs> intoned it. You could say it's a podcast. The last time you were on, you dropped a few of them. I did not. Uh, that was a few back. Oh, a few back. Okay. But, She's so, getting better. I know. I'm really trying. But on that note, so, I mean, but so... You know, people in, in the party, they want somebody who can play by the rules. Well, here, I mean, it, but it's so frustrating yeah, for me yeah. because <laughs> I see the Democrats say that there's so many different things that they're, they're saying. And one of them is this thing that we're, we're spending a lot of time talking about Obama. And uh, Obama was chastising Democrats. Yes. Uh, no. This quote about uh, being woke. And being critical of calling out people if they don't follow you every step of the way. And that's the problem with Democrats. And we've alienated. Okay, boomer. <laughs> I agree with that. If only he applied that in the case of the Obama Foundation and their Obama Presidential Center work. So don't get me started. Again. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's ultimately what he was saying. Uh, because he was being criticized by people. I don't think it was a coincidence, yeah. uh, Juanita, that yeah. uh, the the South Side was stepping up its pressure That's on a right. community benefit agreement. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, uh, Barack Obama is saying, you know, you Democrats, that's why you can't win an election. Yeah. He's trying to tell people, you know, not to do this call out culture thing because he's getting called out. Yeah. Right. No, Democrats do not like it. I know this because I've been writing about Democrats and power in the city of Chicago forever. When ordinary people step up and make demands, they don't like it. People in power do not like to concede what they have without a struggle. We all know that. Yep. And uh, that's what's happening with Bernie. And I, I read these articles where the mainstream Democrats, their attitude is we can win over middle America by just being nice. No, you really can't. What? No, that's really. No, I mean, what you really need to do is you have to have a point of view. And we know that Bernie has a specific point of view. And people need jobs. I mean, you can be nice all day, but unless people feel that their economic needs are being addressed, it, the nice part doesn't really matter. So I think we have to get to that. And, and Bernie is addressing the economic challenges that so many of us feel while some of some folks thought they were going to get that addressed through Trump. Now they're realizing that that, you know, better economy is not for them. You know, maybe they will switch over to Bernie. But the nice part is that's not important. All right. Now, let me uh, throw out a candidate uh, who has emerged in the last week, which 
it caught me off guard and get your each of you's response to this the former mayor of new york city uh announced i think it was friday or saturday i've lost track of time uh, that he was going to file petitions to run in the alabama democratic primary uh, i guess he's figured out a strategy that enables him to avoid uh, new hampshire and iowa like all the rest of them he says just jump jump right into alabama why he thinks anybody in alabama is going to vote for him that's a whole other story michael bloomberg he was once a democrat then he was a Republican. Now he guess he's an independent. And he thinks he's person best positioned uh, to represent the Democratic Party against Donald John Trump. Your thoughts on that, Juanita? He needs to go away. That's all I have to say. Go ahead, Lori. I just, first okay. of all, you know, as a Jew in Alabama, I'm from New York, it's kind of like, seriously, that's the first place that you're going to start. Again, I am a Jew from Chicago. I think that, you know, he obviously, the polling is showing that Biden's going down. And so people in the Democratic Party are freaking out, obviously, and they're trying to find somebody that they think that the middle ground will coalesce around. And I want to go back to something really simple, though. It's called the Electoral College. And what I'd really, really like to know is what is the Democratic Party doing to strategically look at the Electoral College? Because we know we've got California, we have New York, uh, and we have, you know, Illinois in the middle. And we know where the blue states are. And what I want to really understand is it was... Two things. We we know it wasn't really that Donald Trump won. It was that Hillary Clinton lost and people stayed home and didn't vote. All right. They were not galvanized by her candidacy. Like her, don't like her. And personally, I thought Hillary was going to make a great president. I was looking forward to her becoming president. I thought that she I wore my little white jacket Did you, you know were I you was, doing that i was nervous yeah. for some reason but i you know, Wait, so you wore the of, little white both jacket. of you voted for bernie in the primary but you thought that you were big fans of hillary well i sure wanted hillary uh, over, over trump, trump. trump. <laughs> i mean what are you talking that's about that's a no-brainer yeah. come on yeah. but also in those debates <laughs> yeah. you saw her grow as she a actually has candidate. skill sets yeah. she does. i mean she's agree brilliant. with her or not she has skill sets no, and i just wanted to establish that you both and you know what Putin has taken us down across the world, and the one person he was scared of was Hillary Clinton. And he has. He's undone the Western world from Syria to the United States. And look at Brexit and everything. It's really frightening. So, yes, I would have rather have had Hillary Clinton. But the reality is that the presidential election is almost like high school writ large. It is. And so you got to figure out, we know that whoever ever, ever is the Democratic candidate is going to win in these blue states. But what I want to know is what is the ground game and how are we going to win in Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, and whatever the other swing states were that went for Barack Obama and they didn't go for Hillary Clinton and they sat home and they didn't vote. All right. That's something to pick up on the next time you're on the show. And also I'm going to throw out at you to think about this. Texas. Let's if oh, we're going to stick with the electoral college, go for Texas as mm -hmm. well. Uh, before I let you go, any 
any things you want to tell people about that they should know about either one of you uh lori starting with well you. you know i've been doing a lot of work as we you know about uh public safety and anti-violence working with the partnership for safe and peaceful communities i want to give a shout out to communities partnering for peace uh as well as cred and ready chicago who are these on the ground organizations that are really working in the most challenged communities to transform how outreach work is done and providing employment and wraparound services in the community's hardest hit. And there was an incredible story that Darcel Rocket wrote in the Chicago Tribune on um, that is online about the Chicago The Peace Academy, which is an incredible place that's training people on how to be, to professionalize outreach workers in Chicago communities. And I want to urge Mayor Lightfoot to support, uh, and this is me as an individual person, not representing any client whatsoever, but there's a $50 million ordinance out there in the world uh, to fund anti-violence on the ground, peace initiatives uh, for Chicago, because we cannot police our way out of the problem. We have to have people engaged in their own communities fighting for public safety. Go team. Okay. (laughs) And I'll just say Friends of the Parks got one of these safe and peaceful communities grants, actually two of them, which we are um, passing through to park advisory councils. Actually, we provide fiscal agency services to a lot of those groups, and we see them as super important in this you know, struggle to have safe communities and to have people involved in democracy. And a lot of times you can't vote because you're not documented or because of whatever reasons, but you can be involved in your park advisory council and other community organizing. So we're all about that. All right, very good. Uh, Juanita Irizarry, uh, Lori Glenn, thank you so much for coming on. And I also want to thank Denise O'Neill, our guest earlier in the show, and uh, Maya Dukmasova uh, at the start of the show. And, of course, the man, the myth, the legend behind the board, the pride and joy of Alton, Illinois. And as Lori Juanita can tell you, back home in Alton, they call him White Lightning. Give yourself a raise. <laughs> take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. <laughs> My name's Dennis. All right, everybody, remember you can download previous Ben Jarofsky shows and Benny J bonus interviews at both Chicago Sun-Times and Chicago Reader websites, chicago.suntimes.com, chicagoreader.com, and wherever else you download podcasts. And downloaders, we live stream this program Tuesdays through Fridays, 1 until 3 p.m. Central Time or 3.30. You know, we like to go over sometimes. It's fine. It's a podcast. We could do that. But join us at the same websites, chicagoreader.com, chicago.suntimes.com, and the Chicago Sun-Times YouTube channel. Find us on Facebook at Benny J Show, B-E-N-N-Y, the letter J Show, also on Twitter, and The Ben Jarofsky Show on Instagram.